Warning, Tongue and Geek contains heavy spoilers. If you haven't read, watched, or played the content being reviewed this episode, know that we will definitely spoil major plot points. Also, this show isn't for kids. We use words like and and it would take too much time and effort to edit them all out. Please don't tell our moms. Lovely listeners, and welcome to Tongue and Geek, where two more white guys on the internet give their unsolicited opinions on all things geeky. I'm Isaac. I'm Tyler. And today we're talking about The Suicide Squad, which is directed by James Gunn and is a standalone sequel to DC Films' 2016 Suicide Squad movie. Tyler, you want to give us some background on this one? Okay, where to start with the background on this one? Um, the first movie that came out in 2016, and I'm sure I don't have to tell anybody who is going to listen to this, it made a lot of money, but wasn't the best received movie of it, all time. It's shit. Uh, <laughs> it's shit. Critics hated it. Fans hated it. Yeah, it's it's not a good movie. So there was a lot riding on this one because. I won't get into the nitty gritty of it, but for a while there, James Gunn was fired from Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Um, he, of course, was the writer director of the first two. And Warner Brothers scooped him up and saw an opportunity because he had made two over at Marvel. So they're like, hey, you know what? He could be our guy. And um, according to him, they kind of gave him carte blanche to uh, do whatever he wanted. They even offered him Superman at some point. He's like, you know what? I want to do the Suicide Squad. So, lo and behold, we have the Suicide Squad. Everything that you would want to happen with this one happened. It is mostly beloved. Uh, fans love it. Critics loved it. It's pretty much everything the first one could have been and should have been. You don't need the first one, like, at all. Like, if you're going to watch a Suicide Squad movie... Totally skippable. There's one. no reason to watch the first one, and nothing that happened in the first one is important to the story of this one. I don't want to step on the toes of the people who do like the first one, because, do, you know, I respect all fans it's of... a bad movie. Hey, 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 hey. Everybody's allowed to love whatever they want to love. They are. Um... <laughs> Such an ass. Anyway, <laughs> because because fans are pedantic these days with with geek property and nerd shit. There's all, is it a sequel? Is it a reboot? Does it take place in the same continent? Y- yes. It, it like just because it doesn't necessarily connect to the first one, it's it's still ostensibly a sequel. We have multiple characters from the first one with the same actors reprising the roles. And there's tiny little things that kind of connect it, like their interpersonal relationships, say, between, like, Harley Quinn and Flag and, and Captain Boomerang, who all were together in the first one. Kind of, you know, hints at the first one, but other than that, yeah, completely standalone. Do we want to start with recap, or do we just want to bury the lead and discuss how much we enjoyed it? We should do a little recap first to give some details of, like, what the actual plot is. So it starts off... And we're following this character named Savant, I believe was his name. Was that the guy Savant, at the beginning? Played by, yes. Played by Michael Rooker. Yes. We're following him. And like the first 15 minutes is like 
them assembling this new squad, like a whole new Suicide Squad. Um, go, I, I'm terrible with names, Tyler. So go down the list of like the characters in that Suicide Squad during that first opening sequence. Well, it's it's headed up by Amanda Waller, of course, who is the architect of the Suicide Squad, aka Task Force X. Mm-hmm. She's getting another team together. We kind of jump right into it. She gets Savant. Um, it's it's just it's a who's who of, of like obscure DC characters. Javelin. We got TDK, which stands for um, the Detectable Kid. Um, <laughs> Captain Boomerang, Blackguard, Mongal who is the sister of Superman villain Mungle. Who else? Harley Quinn, of course. She's on that first team. And am I missing somebody? You are. You're missing the best character. Weasel! Weasel! <laughs> oh, Good old weasel. weasel. He's just a gigantic weasel. Like, that's it. He's like a man yeah, he's weasel. A big weasel. Yeah. A big, ugly weasel. There's a great joke where everybody's and, um, trying to figure out what the fuck he is. They're like, is this a dog? Yeah, he looks like an Afghan hound or something. <laughs> it's like, dude, is this a werewolf? They start freaking out. He's like, no, it's just a weasel. Doesn't talk, just kind of just screams. sits there. And <laughs> he just kind of screams. screams and has googly eyes. And <laughs> yeah, he's really disturbing looking. Uh, yeah, they're all led up by Lieutenant Rick Flag. Rick Flag yeah. Uh, he leads the team onto this beach. They're trying to get some... Uh, they're trying to go to like this South American island where there's like some research project going on and they need to destroy the facility and like get back some data that was uh, important or whatever. So they get down onto the beach and the first thing that happens is that Weasel drowns (laughs) because he could not swim and nobody bothered to check because they just dropped them into the middle of the ocean. (laughs) So one death down within the first 15 minutes. Uh, The rest of the team gets on shore and are immediately and hilariously gunned to death. Like, all of them except for Rick Flagg and Harley Quinn die. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's... It's <laughs> amazing. It it's, is... <laughs> it, sets the, it sets the tone immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, because you mentioned this after we watched it. So much of the marketing is revolved around this first team that yeah. you see. So you think they're gonna be most of the team but <laughs> nope it's just this this bait and switch for like you know the movie jumps right into it like getting the team together going on a mission storming the beach and they all just die in the most horrible hilarious brutal ways yeah TD- i knew <laughs> tdk a, he detaches his arms and they get the shot at and kid. like he's just rising on the ground <laughs> Oh, it's so good. Oh, God. There's so many hilarious visual gags in this first 15 minutes. I Mm. I knew I was going to... I mean, I'm a big James Gunn fan in general. Yeah. And I laughed in the helicopter scene with the whole, like, is he a dog? He's a fucking werewolf? Oh, God. Get me out of here. But, like, when Weasel jumps out of the plane and he immediately starts drowning, like, (laughs) the the, the sport... The soundtrack cuts out. Like, it's just him drowning. Oh, my God. And everybody's like, what the fuck? He, he can't swim. And then, like, Savant goes to save him, drags him to the beach, checks his vitals. There's, like, a beat of silence. And then you just hear over the comms, the weasel's dead. <laughs> the weasel's dead. I was already laughing my ass off. It's such a good opening segment because it's such a bait and switch and it works so well. Like, it, if this was a more serious movie, it would piss people off so bad to be like, oh man, all these characters that we love and recognize are like, 
suddenly dead and they just switched them out for these other ones. It's like, that's bullshit. But it's like, they chose the most D-list characters they could find and just threw them together for this quick gag at the beginning that sets the tone of like, yeah, this is a completely irreverent, hyper-violent movie where like anybody can die at any moment and it's not going to be tragic. It's going to be funny as hell. So like, it's great. The tragedy I'll- comes later. Yeah. Uh. Which isn't to say it's not um, heartfelt. We'll get to that, but like... Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll definitely get to that. But like, yeah, um, I which, love this opening segment. It's it's fantastic. Speaking of the the violence, um, I will say that I can see more casual viewers who aren't accustomed to this level of violence in comic book movies being turned off by it. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that in review review, because lots of people had that comment. It's... I'll just... If, by the t- I mean, this isn't going to come out right away, but by the time somebody's listening to this and they haven't seen it, just be warned that it's it's really violent. It's like, incredibly. Very, very yes. It makes like, Deadpool look tame. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Deadpool's both of them are completely tame compared to this. Yeah. Um, you see, but like- it's a James Gunn movie. And if you're familiar with his earlier works, he got his let me I'm going to flex my movie geek cred. All right. He got started in Troma Studios. And for horror movie and exploitation fans, you, you know what trauma is. It's the, it's America's oldest independent film studio and distributor. Um, that's kind of their tagline. Uh, they specialize in low budget, low brow, shocking for the sake of it movies. And James Gunn's movie for trauma was Tromeo and Juliet, which is just a gross out adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. And it's my favorite trauma movie. So I've been a fan of him ever since all the way back in the day. So mm-hmm. he has a bunch of great horror movies to his credit. And then he, he got huge with the Guardians movies. And now he has another great combat movie under his belt with the Suicide Squad. This movie so. really feels like what Guardians would be if it was completely like off the chain. Like if Marvel was just like, hey, do whatever you want, James Gunn. Like this is definitely... His, like, I have a lot more free reign to do it, play it how I want. It's basically if you took the sort of, like, style and family narrative, like, themes of the Guardians movies and pair it with, like, the hyperviolence and irreverence of a Deadpool film. Yeah. That's, that's basically what this movie is. And that's not to say it doesn't have its own identity, because it totally does. No, no, it does. But, like, you definitely feel the James Gunn influence here. Like you can tell like the same guy who made guardians made this, but he's taking it. He's pushing things way further. And it's, it's honestly shocking. They let him get away with what he gets away with. Yeah. Like when it was rated R, when it was confirmed R, I'm like, Oh cool. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I, so I expected it to have a level of, you know, gore and violence, but I honestly wasn't expecting this much. Yeah. You see (laughs) a guy get ripped in half. You see like, yeah, yeah, you see like so much people and limbs and just, entrails there's like a whole scene where they're walking through like this lab where this the all these people have been tortured and you see like their severed limbs and like their faces ripped off and like all this horrific shit and it doesn't just like pan over it either like it takes the time to show you like it gets brutal in some places and like i I was grossed out a bit and i have a pretty strong stomach for that kind of stuff but it was like ugh. yeah it's it's pretty hardcore it's not it's not as hardcore as say something like invincible was no i mean if if invincible because invincible was animated it could go like completely nuts but like 
if well, Invincible that, was live action, that would be like rated X. It would. <laughs> well, that and it's this, not quite at that level, but it's it's definitely crazy. Th- this is sort of a tangent too. It's like gore is very different depending on the tone that you put to it. With this movie, it's like cartoonishly gory. Like it's meant to be like over the top gory, and for because of that, even when it's like at its most disturbing, it's still like layer of you know unrealism attached to it. But with like a series like Invincible, even though it's animated, like the gore in that is meant to be tragic and shocking and horrifying. So like even if it's like the same amount of gore, like the tone attached to that like gore makes it so much more powerful, you know? Whereas here, it's like, even though, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that you're gonna see that's gonna gross you out, it's more like, yeah, but the tone here is that it's supposed to be, like, a wacky, over-the-top violent kind of movie. Mm-hmm. I guess we've talked enough about the gore, so we should probably... Yeah, let's move on. Get, get into the meat of the uh, of the movie Speaking proper. Speaking of gore, meat. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Task Force X... Squad 1 dies, but it turns out that they were just a diversion for Task Force X Squad 2, which is headed up by Deathstroke, fuck, no, I meant, uh, Deadshot, fuck, no, I meant, um, Bloodsport. Oh, you're doing a bit, okay, I didn't know you were doing it. Yeah, it's another guy who's super good at martial arts and every weapon known to man, um, which they play off that. They so, do. They, they they poke fun at it. Yeah, it's it's like when you first see it, you're like, oh god, another one of these. But like they make fun of it, and it works well. Um, so you have Bloodsport, you have Peacemaker, who is another another guy who is super good with weapons and martial arts and all that stuff. You have Ratcatcher Two, daughter of Ratcatcher, and her power is that she can summon rats, which is horrifying. You have King Shark. Who fucking steals the show, baby, protect, and Polka Dot Man, who is also another great character who just makes these polka dots that, like, disintegrate anything they touch. Pretty pretty much every character on the main squad is, steals the movie at some point. Yeah. Uh, let me flex my comic book cred, too, <laughs> after I got done flexing my, um... It's a DC movie. movie. You're allowed to flex. <laughs> these are your flex moments. Well... What what makes the concept of the Suicide Squad so appealing is that you know, the whole concept itself, like, we'll take these obscure villains, these mm-hmm. these second tier, third, third tier, sometimes even fourth tier villains, and put them on a, a team together and have them do the dirty missions nobody else wants to do. James Gunn, he's a big fan, obviously. The, the run that really put the team on the map uh, was by John Ostrander in the 80s and into the 90s. Mm-hmm. And... Gunn said that he saw this as sort of almost a continuation of that run and not just an adaptation. Mm. So I I really love how he just went crazy with it and is like, you know what? I'm not going to just adapt a team is- from the comics. I'm going to pick in the spirit of the comics. I'm going to pick whoever I want, just cherry pick and match them together. Is this and- James Gunn's fanfic for the Suicide Squad? I guess you can call it that is because this, every this film team, is every film adaptation of a comic book just an elaborate corporate <laughs> fan fiction? Is that all that separates fan fiction from like adaptations? Is the amount of money that goes into them? Is, is corporate licensing and, and all that stuff? Oh Probably. My God. I, mean, maybe. I just cracked the. I just broke it open. Nothing. 
Nothing separates the fanfic writers from the professionals. It's all just a thin veneer. Yeah, this is the yeah, this is James Gunn fan fiction squad because this this squad does not exist in this form in any of the comics. Mm-hmm. I don't even think some of them have ever actually been on the team, and all of them except for of course Harley Quinn and, and Rick Flag, who's a constant throughout the comic. Mm-hmm. All of them are basically footnotes in DC's history. They don't have a lot of appearances. They don't have much history. Peacemaker was um, like from the fucking like forties or something, wasn't he? Peacemaker, like a- Peacemaker wasn't originally a DC character. Yeah. Um, he, w- he was from a long-defunct company called Charlton Comics. And the Charlton characters were bought by DC back in the day. Mm-hmm. So that includes characters like Peacemaker and Blue Beetle and characters like that. Uh. And he had um, a brief stint of popularity in Charlton. And when DC bought them, they released a couple of very, very short runs of like four, six issues each. And then he just kind of disappeared for for a long time. Um, He showed up in a Grant Morrison comic and a non-continuity comic called Multiversity. And I can't think of anything else significant until this movie. So James Gunn's really hitting those deep cuts with his his roster here. Peacemaker's played by John Cena, by the way. Just throwing that out there. In his best role to date. Yeah, surprisingly good role by John Cena. And uh, Bloodsport played by Idris Elba. Um, of course, always great. Yep, uh, just the beefy, sexy, smoke show of a man. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. You can, everybody has made this comparison already. Yeah, you can kind of tell the role was originally meant for Deadshot, Will Smith's character. But I'm pretty, I don't know specifically because I haven't looked it up myself. But I'm pretty sure they did want Deadshot again, and Will Smith had scheduling conflicts, so they brought Idris Elba in, and he's he's Bloodsport, which he kind of has the same power set abilities as Deadshot. Yeah, exactly the same. Um, he's a guy with good with every possible weapon and is trained in martial arts. He's he's basically a better version of Deadshot, and even though you can be like, oh, I guess that could have been Will Smith, it, it doesn't matter because he's a better character. As written and performed. Originally in the comics, he was a a Superman villain in the 80s. Um, Again, not not many appearances. He... I could could give his brief backstory. Why not? (laughs) Um, In the comics, he's a bit... He's way more unhinged. Um, He has this backstory of um, the Vietnam War. He was actually kind of a coward. Didn't want to do it. But his brother went. And his brother, like, lost all of his limbs. And... He um, went all crazy, and Lex Luthor hired him like to use him as a weapon against Superman, shoots him with a kryptonite bullet, which they reference in the movie, which is a cool little yeah. nod. And then we have Ratcatcher 2, which is really interesting. She's the heart because of this movie. She, she's, she's like the emotional the, core. Yes, one of the five beating hearts of this movie. Um, <laughs> she is technically an original character, because in the comics, there's only Ratcatcher, and he's a Batman villain. Ah. So... I have to applaud James Gunn for, I mean, <laughs> you know how comic book fans can be. Like, yeah. what? You're, 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 you're making <laughs> beloved Batman villain rat catcher into the daughter and a female, but that didn't quite happen. At least I didn't is see it. He be- is rat catcher beloved? He, no, he's not beloved. I was being facetious. That's, that's what I'm saying. That's <laughs> part of the point I wanted to make is that, like, what's so great about this movie and what's so great about the fact that James Gunn has such free reign here is that, like, 
a cool thing about a superhero movie that takes like the D-list characters is that there's so much more freedom to play with them. When you have a movie with Superman or Batman or Spider-Man or an established character that everyone immediately recognizes and they know like their major story arcs, like you you're constrained. You have to follow certain story beats and if you deviate from them, the fans will eat you alive. Like, and that also means that, like, hey, also we've got to do this balancing act between, oh, uh, we can't just tell the same damn story over and over and over again, and hey, we can't deviate too far from the norm, or the fans will call it, like, a misrepresentation of character and everything. When you've got these D-list characters that hardly anybody in the mainstream has heard about, and even the people who do know them, like, really don't think of them as, like, super-duper important to anything. Like, you have so much more free reign to, like, reinvent them as something unique and interesting and powerful standing on their own instead of as part of this larger narrative that's been going on for decades. So, like, you get this story with this version of the Suicide Squad that, like, yeah, is made up of a bunch of characters that maybe people don't really recognize or care about, excluding Harley Quinn, because she's, like, the most recognizable DC villain and ever except for the Joker himself at this point. But, like, you have so much more room where you can, like, take these characters that have been around for so long but have been either misused or not used at all and find new ways of exploring what they can say about superheroes and just the world at large. Yeah, it's 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 something James Gunn is good at because he did it over at Marvel with the Guardians. Yeah, because nobody that, gave a fuck about the Guardians before the movies came out. There was like such a small following yeah, of even, the Guardians. Not even comic readers really like knew about the Guardians or read the Guardians beforehand, and now they're like as big as as anybody. Yeah, they're Space Avengers. They're like they're like their own Avengers team in space that everybody recognizes. Nobody, I ha- I still can't believe that those movies got greenlit. Like I'm amazed that the Guardians movies got made at Marvel. Yeah. But they, I mean... They did, and they're amazing. And to think they almost threw it all away. Mm-hmm. But hey, if they didn't fire James Gunn for for a hot minute, we wouldn't have gotten this movie. So it all worked out in the end. And he's back making Guardians 3, so it all all works out. Um, Rat Character 2, and we went off on a tangent there. Sorry. Um, yeah, she is one of the parts of the movie. Um, she's played by newcomer... God, I hope I don't butcher her name. Uh, Daniela... Melchior? Is that how you would pronounce it? I don't have her name pulled up, so I couldn't tell you. Let me look. Anyway, um, she is very charming, and you can tell that she's the character that shouldn't be here. Like, oh yeah, you you, you question until she gives her back. So you question like why she's even in prison in the first place. Um, she's got a good heart. Um, she's she has a cute character quirk where like she's just perpetually sleepy. Mm-hmm. I, my theory is that she has the fucking plague from all the rats. <laughs> uh, and there's also the the darker theory that we're kind of jumping ahead here, but her father was a heroin addict. Mm-hmm. That I mean, perpetual sleepiness is kind of a you know a symptom of withdrawal and um, coming off of of heroin. So maybe she was also a heroin addict for for a time. Quite possible. So she is. Okay, we got. Oh, all we got is Polka Dot Man and King Shark. We'll save the King Shark later. Polka Dot Man, um, right. everybody's loving Polka Dot Man too. Played by another guy whose name is hard to pronounce, <laughs> David Dasmalchian. He's kind of everywhere lately. Um, mm-hmm. He's a 
kind of a chameleon character actor. He's been in The Dark Knight. He's been in Ant-Man. He's been in all kinds of big movies in these small roles. And this is kind of a breakout for him. Um, he's hilarious. Um, Polka Dot Man is another Batman villain. His whole gimmick was obviously Polka Dots. He's like, he's this kind of hangdog, woebegone, just miserable kind of dude. <laughs> <laughs> There's a point where they're just like, we're all going to die on this mission. And he's like, I hope so. And it's like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> This is the character they're going with. And his backstory is so fucking it's, funny, tragic. It's so it's, funny, tragic. His the, the running gag with his mother is one of my favorite jokes in the whole movie. So, like, his the story is that his mother wanted to create superheroes, so she experimented on him and his siblings. And I think all of his siblings died, but he survived and killed his mother. And now he just sees her everywhere. So... Multiple times throughout the movie, you'll see, like, bad guys turn into, like, his mother. You'll see, like, even the squad members will turn into his mother. And it's not just, like, his regular mother. It's, like, CGI'd (laughs) version of her to be, like, multiple sizes and shapes and everything. And it's fucking hilarious. It's a, it's a, it's a hilarious side gag. And it works every time they use it. Mm -hmm. They use it, like, three or four times in the movie. It's... It's a great reveal because he's laying out his backstory and it's tragic mm-hmm. because the comic version is just his polka dots are just tech. Basically, it's just ha this one explodes or this one does this. Mm-hmm. But this one has an element of body horror. Um, it's an interdimensional virus. So he gets these brightly rainbow colored legions that just grow and they're like tumors that just grow in his body. And he has to expel them twice a day or else it's going to kill him. And they come out as polka dots. And they burn anything they touch. Just melt it to ash. It's such a great gag. Yeah. He's he's laying out his backstory, and one of them, one of the other team members asks, like, where is your mother? And it's just it's a close-up of his face, and he's like, everywhere. And it cuts to the rest of the team, and it's just they're all his mom. <laughs> and the king shark one in the back is just like looking at a butterfly, and it's like this big fat gray version of his mother, and it's so fucking funny. <laughs> Pokemon Man's another MVP, and then we get to the MVP of MVPs for me. It may it may vary depending on the viewer. King Shark. King Shark. King Shark is a shark. Um, voiced by Sylvester Stallone, and motion capture performed by Steve Aggie. I think you is that how you say his name? I don't know. Who's also the uh, the the spectacled guy in the control room with Waller and all of them? Ah, oh, oh, okay, was- yeah, <laughs> the bigger guy with the beard. Yep. Yep, that guy. Cool. Um, I love King Shark. Any iteration, any version, because he's a big walking, talking shark. It's it's so. <laughs> it's weird stepping off of like the Harley Quinn animated series version of King Shark, where he's like sort of just a regular dude with like like a normal emotions and thoughts and everything, who occasionally breaks out into violence. To this version, which is more of like the simpleton, childlike version, who only knows a few words and still breaks out into bursts of violence every now and then. But, like, it's a great version of that trope. It is. It's... it. He's, I will say, pisses me off a little bit, because Thor motherfucking Ragnarok, you had the Incredible Hulk, who is literally the icon of this goddamn trope of violent simpleton childlike character, and... You had the opportunity to make a funny and heartwarming version of that character, and you fucked it up! 
Here's Suicide Which, Squad where they have a fucking shark man and that's not even necessarily his actual character traits in the comics and they pulled it off beautifully, but you have the goddamn Hulk, the most iconic version of this trope, and you fuck it up! Which is funny because Taika Waititi wrote and directed Ragnarok and Taika Waititi plays Ratcatcher 2's father. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I wonder if he thought that on set at some point. We've got... Like, I, no, he didn't. He was like, I, I did such a good <laughs> job with that. One of these days... We're uh, we're gonna review some of his movies that we actually like. I don't want it to sound like we fucking hate Taika oh, Waititi. No. I he's look, a I mean, he's wonderful great. director. He has a oh, lot Ragnarok of fantastic sucks. movies. Fucking hate Ragnarok. Anyway, I don't mean to bring that <laughs> dead horse to beat into our review for Suicide Squad. So let's go on. Um, I could I could just make this the King Shark episode, but um, <laughs> I've loved sharks since I was a kid. So you throw me a comic book character that's a Walking, talking shark. Um, he could be the almost mindless killer aggressive type, which he's been. He could be smart and intelligent like he is in the Harley Quinn show. Or he could be kind of like the simpleton, lovable version like he is in this. And mm-hmm. I'll love all of it. In, in the comics, he uh, in the, when he first joined the Suicide Squad. Yeah. Well, no, not first. Um, he appeared. He first appeared as a Superboy villain in the 90s. Huh. So he's, a ni- he's a 90s creation. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, he, it's not bad. He's just kind of, he's kind of basically the the generic kind of monster in that at first. He didn't wear sunglasses and like Hawaii pattern shorts. No, like, but he had a, into battle. <laughs> but he has a really cool tattoo. What's the? T- I don't want to sound stupid. I can't. The term's not coming to me. But the Hawaiian tattoos. What are those called? Tribal. Yeah, he has a cool tribal tattoo on one of his arms. Ah. Uh. And um, in in the Superboy comic, he is reluctantly recruited onto a Suicide Squad mission for a couple issues. And then the New 52, he's a full-time member. And in that, he's a hammerhead, which is cool. And James Gunn said they they wanted to do the hammerhead at first, but it just seemed – it didn't seem. It was just too logistically tough because, you know, how the hammerhead's eyes are just – Yeah, that's hard (laughs) to know. Two feet apart and pointing – the opposite directions, so, but I'm glad they went with the the standard kind of great white look because it's it's adorable. The it's the cute factor, bro. <laughs> it really <laughs> is. I never thought I'd look at a shark and be like, "Hey, that's a cute creature." It's a fucking adorable watching King Shark. Whenever he's not mauling and eating people whole, like he's, oh, yeah, he's so adorable. cute. He does like. Don't get me wrong. He's terrifying when he swallows a man whole at one point, but like he's just like got these big gigantic eyes that are just like looking around at people. And even though he's got that mouthful of sharp teeth there, it's always kind of like slightly agape and like kind of like dullard looking like he is that cute, stupid look. And it's so great. James Gunn is just so good at doing a lot with a little mm-hmm. because King shark doesn't have a lot of dialogue, no. but you, you get so endeared to him so quickly when the main team is on the beach and they're heading toward their destination. They're camping out for the night. Bloodsport wakes up in time to see King Shark about to eat Ratcatcher 2 while she's dead ass asleep. He shoots him a bunch of times to back him off. And the whole squad's like, what do we do with him? Like, do we kill him? Like, we can't have him eating our team members. Like, seems a wild card. Mm-hmm. Wallace's like, no, you need him. He's your strongest member. Ratcatcher, being the sweetheart that she is. You know, she starts to befriend him. And it's just, it's such a, sim- oh, I'm going to cry. She <laughs> <laughs> kneels down next to him. Uh, and she's like, you know, do you want to be our friends? Would you eat, would you eat your friends? And just, 
there's just the way it's performed and the special effects are so good. Like you can see King Shark thinking like he's not like he's not mindless. He's not mindless. He's like, he's thinking about it and he's like, oh, I don't have any friends. He has no and like, friends. And like, it's not a, it's not an overly sappy moment. Like, he's not saying it in a woe is me kind of way. It's very like matter of fact the way he says it. Like, yeah. And it's just like, oh, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's like, well, we can be friends from now on. And she's mm-hmm. like, yes, be, be their friends. She Throughout a, the movie. She has a great line ahead. though, and I don't remember it. I'm gonna paraphrase, but it's so beautiful where like Bloodsport calls her out, he's like, This is a stupid ass idea, and she's like, It would not be a mistake to die believing like, in like love. Gambled on, yeah, gambling like, on, gambled love. on love. Yeah, yeah or something like it's that. It's so beautiful for a fucking suicide squad movie. Like it's <laughs> such a beautiful line to exist here. Just throughout the movie, occasionally it just takes little moments to kind of just check in on King Shark and what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Later on, they're like driving in the van, and he's just he's just peeking out the window, just like observing life, just observing life around him. Mm-hmm. And like, like again, it's so understated, yeah. But like, it tugs on your heartstrings because like you can just see that he's like absorbing all this, and he's like enjoying it, and he's curious. There's a scene where they go into a bar, and like all of them are dancing and just enjoying like possibly their last night alive. And King Shark has to stay in the van because you know he's a gigantic shark man, sharks. and nobody can see him. And you just hear him, like, he's just listening to the music coming from inside the building. He's, like, slowly nodding his head. And it's this mix of adorable and horribly sad because it's just like, he's stuck alone in the van by himself. Let him in to dance. And what, and what makes that work so well is that he wants to be with them. Mm-hmm. Because when they're getting ready beforehand, you know, they're like, what are we going to do with him? He's like, I could be in a disguise. Yeah, he's like, I'll wear like, what disguise. Thick mustache. <laughs> they're like, no, it's not going to work. And he, he puts oh. his little thin finger up, and they're like, you still look exactly the way you look. And he goes, fuck. Fuck. <laughs> and he just storms away. Oh, and he loves eating people. He loves nom noms. Yes, he loves um, his nom noms. He eats people multiple times throughout the movie. I guess we're just, we're just run through his whole sort of trajectory here from the beginning and the end of the movie, and then we'll get to everybody else. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, should we backtrack and do some more recap, or are we going to just finish up King Shark real quick? <laughs> we're, we're already down that road. All right, we'll, let's finish we'll up finish King Shark, King and Shark. We'll, we'll backtrack a bit. Um, seeing him eat people is, is fucking awesome and fun. Yeah. Um, but my favorite part, probably my favorite, uh, could it be my favorite? There's so many great scenes that could be my favorite scene. <laughs> but one of my favorite scenes, there's just kind of this like running sort of thing where like when the team's like in the, in the moment, they kind of sort of forget about him and like they'll leave him behind. So toward in the third act, when they're getting ready to do what they came there to do, they're all going off in separate directions. And all of a sudden King Sharks is left alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's wandering himself and it's called Jotunheim, the place where they needed to be. Yeah. And he comes across this room. That's an aquarium. And like this beautiful score kicks in and these weird jellyfish things start swimming toward him and like he's like oh my god like what are these things dumb new and friends he says dumb new friends and they they take his shape they outline his shape with with their little bodies and they're playing and he's just he's so happy he found friends and he's like oh that's so cute and so sweet it's another like tear moment and then later as Jotunheim's exploding because they're in there to blow it up the room they're in floods 
<laughs> and the jellyfish are there, and like, oh, his friends are okay. And then they turn vicious. <laughs> and then they start, they start eating him. him. Like, oh. <laughs> Such a good. Oh, my guy. exact reaction was like, the the aquarium blows up. I'm like, no, his new friends. He just made those friends. And then like you see them swimming around him, and he's like, oh, they're okay. And then they just turn around and start eating him. And it's like, oh fuck no. Why? I was so I was so on edge this entire third act mm-hmm. because the movie does a good job of making you care about these characters, and because the movie offs some of them, mm-hmm. you're like, "Who's going to be next?" There's yeah. a genuine sense of tension, like, "Who's going to die?" Yes. So King Shark's being attacked by these jellyfish, and he falls out of this building that like a hundred or more feet to the ground. And you're like, oh god, did that kill him? No, please don't tell me he's dead. But they, but then the bad guys, the military, start shooting him. He's still alive, and I'm like, stop hurting my boy! Yeah. <laughs> like, leave him alone. That, that's a great point to jump back on. Is that like this movie? A lot of superhero movies, you know, going in, like nobody's major is going to die, or if they are, it's like going to be a huge event movie, like in Avengers: Infinity War, Endgame, and stuff like that. Like you know who's going to die. Because those movies have been built up to. With this one, it's like, these are D-list villains and characters from DC's lineup. Any of them are expendable. And it works perfectly for a Suicide Squad movie where characters are supposed to be expendable. You're supposed to see characters on this team dying frequently because, like, yeah, that's how the Suicide Squad works. They're not supposed to be, like, immortal, unstoppable paragon of virtue or anything. They're a bunch of assholes who got thrown in to do a dirty job the regular superheroes won't do, and if they don't do their job right, they'll get killed. Yeah, it lives up to the title. Yeah. Which, it, it, it's, it's a good thing, it's, it's good that you mention like, with other superhero movies, you don't, 99% of the time you know they're not gonna die. You know that Spider-Man's not gonna die. Gonna die yeah. yeah. You, you know Spider-Man like, won't die in a Spider-Man film. Like, and depending on the movie, you already expect going into the movie that somebody's going to die, like Logan or Endgame. You know, like with mm-hmm. Endgame, like, you, all right, somebody's going to die in Endgame. You already know, so you can kind of prepare yourself beforehand. Everyone knew and- going into Endgame that Cap and Tony would die or at least <laughs> retire in some form. Like, we all knew those two were not coming out. The, like, they were not coming out of this movie. And not to knock the movie. Um, no, I love Endgame. Endgame. Yeah, and Tony's Tony's death is very effective. But yes, there's there's a, there's that built-in expo- um, expectation because it's a big finale mm-hmm. that not all of them are going to make it. But with something like this, characters you don't know, like I'm I'm reiterating your point. I don't need to do that. Their, their deaths aren't but, glorious here. It's not like the finale of a character arc. It's like their deaths are meaningless and trivial, and that works great for the tone of this film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that you care so much, like yeah. every, every one of them, everyone that happened, well, except for the beginning, except for the beginning like, where just, it sets. That's that's the thing is like the beginning sets up this tone is like ah we're gonna have this irreverent like violent hopper fun movie that's all just about like anybody can die at any moment and that's great it sets the tone of like ah oh, this can be wacky hopper violence and everything and we don't have to get too attached but then the movie forces you to get attached to these characters anyway and now it's like fuck. I know that this is a movie where anyone can die, so who's going to die? Yeah, and the the fact that I felt that that sense of tension in a superhero movie third act is kind of a small miracle in and of itself. Yeah. Because we've had we've had so many 
superhero movies this past 12 years or so, even the great ones with good third acts, like it, it still feels kind of like, okay, this is the third act action scene. Yeah. You know, but, but with this one, it's so well structured and it did the legwork in making you get invested in the characters that you like, it sucks you in, in a, on a deeper level mm-hmm. than your standard third act superhero action scene. Well, it deviates from the formula is its biggest strength is that like, even though you can tell this is a James Gunn movie and it has a lot of his themes of like found family, uh, underlying this like goofy adventure where wacky comic book hijinks are happening. Like it's, it still deviates from the formula because it's like, when we watched Guardians 1 and 2, we weren't really that worried that, like, any of the members of the Guardians were going to die. Guardians 2 did have uh, Yondu die at the end, but, like, that wasn't too big of a loss because, A, he was a villain in the first movie, and, B, his presence in the second movie, while important to it, was also, like, a dramatic death that was meant to be, like, heartfelt and meaningful. Whereas here, we establish early on that, like, Death is something that happens everywhere to anyone, and no one is safe from it, and it's hilarious, and then suddenly it's not so funny when we are attached to these characters now. So, like, the fact that it can set up, like, hey, this is a goofy, goofy, hyper-violent action movie, but also you're going to really feel bad if this character you've come to love dies. (laughs) No, should we hop back into what the movie is about? Let's now? actually talk about the plot a bit, and we need to go through some of the other characters because God, we just talked yeah. about King Shark for a long time. We're done with King Shark. He's great. We all love him. He's baby, protect, attack, all that stuff. Going back, so Team Two, which we talked about, who the members of that are, uh, they are going to Jotunheim to blow it up, get rid of the evidence of whatever the thing is uh, that they're looking for. Along the way, they reunite with Rick Flag. And they help. There's this little side story about the rebels on this island wanting to take back control of this like regime that was overthrown. It's not really that important. It's just kind of like a background plot contrivance to be like, hey, here's some other people and here's some things going on. They do a great bit where like Peacemaker and Bloodsport are going through like the camp of these (laughs) rebels and like killing all of them because they think that they're like the evil regime that's taken over the island and they're just killing all of these rebels and then they get to like the leader's tent and they see Rick Flag there like discussing like okay we'll help you out if you will help us get to Jotunheim and it's like we're allies now and then they're just like why didn't my men alert me that you all were coming? And it's like, I don't know. They were dead when we got here. It's just like, they just slaughtered us. It's all like, ooh, yeah. um, we didn't see anybody. <laughs> and they kill so many people along the way. <laughs> and it's, 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 a, it's a hilarious scene because the payoff is hilarious. And also because it's just a dick measuring contest between Bloodsport and Peacemaker. Yes. Because they're both the badass, you know, marksmen, good with any weapon in their hand. And the scene escalates, you know, they're just taking people out and then they start, they start sizing each other up and one upping, trying to one up each other with how like nonchalantly and coolly they can take out the bad guys. Yeah, how many crazy weapons they both have. Let's talk about Peacemaker for a minute. I want to talk about Peacemaker's story yeah. or his character arc, because I think he's a really fascinating addition to this cast. All of these other characters are basically like if we were to do the alignment chart, they fall on either chaotic neutral or chaotic evil. Like they're all just a bunch of bad guys who are just like super don't give a fuck about like any of like the rules. With 
Peacemaker, he is very much lawful evil. Like, he is like a super-duper hyper-patriot who believes, above all else, in, like, fulfilling the mission and protecting, like, peace at any cost. Uh, specifically, like, the American notion of peace. And to have him alongside all these characters is both hilarious, because, like, you get to see him, like, rationalizing how hyper-absolutely violent he's being as, like, oh, I'd kill any man, woman, or child to maintain peace, you know? But also, it's, like, incredibly powerful and terrifying, because throughout this whole thing, like, you're seeing these characters starting to bond, starting to form family. Like, there's that whole found family trope of that's, like, central to the themes of this film. And then you get to the point where they get to Jotunheim, and this is skipping a bit ahead. We're just going to skip around the plot at this point. But they get to Jotunheim, and they find out that the American government was responsible for all of these horrible experiments that have been going on. And uh, Rick Flagg is basically like, I didn't go to fucking war for this country for this shit. I'm going to show the new... I'm going to take this back and show everyone like all the horrible shit that the American government did. And Peacemaker is like, I, I can't let you do that. I, I respect you. I think you're a hero, but I will not let you do that. And he and Rick Flagg get in this huge fucking fight that's dirt, dirty, down and gritty brawl, and he fucking kills Rick Flagg. And then he's about to kill Ratcatcher, too, because she tries to get the data. It's, I, I don't know necessarily if I'd call it heartbreaking, but it's like an incredibly powerful emotional arc for him because like you see this character and you understand why he does the things he does but and you don't necessarily hate him for it like he is in the wrong he is being a bastard but like you've seen him be this a lot of fans hate him (laughs) do they do they yeah they hate him for killing flag because flag was such a a no-show in the first one he was just a nothing character and in this one he's likable so everybody hated that flag bit the bullet by Peacemaker. Well, I, I can't hate him because he's so well done. Like, he is in the wrong. He is a bastard who's following, like, the law to the extreme of the letter of being, it's like... love to hate kind yeah. of characters. I, I'm not even necessarily sure it's love to hate. It's more like... We talked about this a bit in the Falcon and Winter Soldier review of, like, with U.S. Agent... Where it's like, Mm -hmm. here's a version of a character who has been so traumatized by the, like, ideology of American military exceptionalism. And, like, that's what Peacemaker is, but in a more, like, comedic sense. He's, like, this character who has been brought up with this idea of American exceptionalism being so profoundly true that he's willing to do anything, even kill people he loves and cares about, in order to maintain that ideology. And, like, I can't hate him, because, like, even though he's the bastard who tries to kill Ratcatcher 2, who is the sweetest little baby angel in this movie, you know why he's doing it. You understand his reasoning and how broken he is as a person to get there, you know? Yeah, like, that's, he, what makes, that's what makes a good villain. Yeah. Is when you can really understand them to the core. Yeah, like, and- he is a bastard, but I know why he's a bastard, and it's sad, and also allows for a lot of great character moments. And the, the whole conceit is like, what if Captain America was a psychotic dick? Yeah. And I think on the cover of his first, like, issue is like, he loves peace so much he'll kill for it. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's kind of a silly gimmick, but it's also a fascinating idea for a character. Yeah. Because his his line that you mentioned, like, he, he literally says, like, I love peace so much I'll kill, like, men, women, and children to achieve it. And it's like, that's kind of a funny dark line. But 
it's a it's a joke that leads to character development. Yeah. Because by the time he's got Ratcatcher 2 at gunpoint and about to shoot her, you're like, oh, fuck. Like, he means it. Mm-hmm. And you can tell he he doesn't want to do it, but he's so dedicated to his code yeah. that he that he will. Like, when he kills Flag, you see it in his face. He's hurt. He's He's hurt by the fact that he did it. Yeah. You know, he feels bad, but he still did it and he's still going to do it again because it's the mission. He says, you know, she's like, okay, like, you know, take the disc, but why kill me? He's like, because, because I'm thorough. thorough. Yeah. Like, it's, it's like, oh, fuck. Like, yeah. you know, we're, we're watching this silly, irreverent movie and then, like, it gets you by the gonads. That's with, with the character drama. That's really like James Gunn's strength as a director is this incredible balancing act of heartfelt and hilarious. Like it's, it's totally an irreverent dark comedy. It's totally meant to not be taken too seriously. It doesn't take itself too seriously. It knows it's supposed to be funny and silly and enjoyable, but it still has that emotional core, that heart to get attached to. And I think that's what allows the comedy. Like I think the comedy and the heartfelt moments are like symbiotic. The fact that we care about these characters makes their jokes and funny moments even funnier. And the fact that they're funny characters that do funny things makes us care about them more. Like the comedy is integral to the character and the character is integral to the comedy. And James Gunn just does such a great job of this like cyclical pattern in his films. Do you got anything else on Peacemaker or do you want to move to Rat Catcher 2? Let's talk, let's talk about Rat Catcher 2. Okay. She's the youngin mm-hmm. on the, on the team. She's got that, like, what's she doing here? That's mm-hmm. the thing about her. Um, she, she's not really bloodthirsty. She's not a, you know, killer for hire, like blood sport or peacemaker. When they're on the bus going to their next mission point, they, they all start to bond. And she specifically starts to bond with blood sport, who we'll get to. She starts giving her backstory. Uh, she grew up with her father on the streets of was Puerto Rico. Something like that. And um, he was a brilliant scientist. Um, he loved his daughter so much. She loved him, but he was a heroin addict. And he created this device that allowed them to communicate and control rats. They would use the rats, you know, to steal trinkets so they can, you know, sell, and get money and get food. And, the ra- and they'd have the rats, like, cover them like a blanket in the streets at night to keep them warm. It's an absurd idea that only in, in the way, like, comics can be absurd, but it just works. You know, because it's 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 said with so much conviction and heart yeah. that you just buy into it. She moved to America after her father died and she robbed a bank with the rats. And then that's how she ended up in prison. They labeled the rats a, like a weapon. Yeah. So that they could spit. It, it's really implied that like Waller or at least the U.S. government wanted her to be in like Bell Rev and so that they could use her on this squad. Yeah. Like there's a lot of talk in this movie about how the prison system abuses its power and manipulates prisoners, which is like surprisingly topical and political for a movie about a bunch, uh, a king shark and a polka dot man. There's a surprising amount of like political undercurrents going on in this movie that have some like serious real point. Amanda Waller is again, a bastard who like manipulates prisoners into slave labor under threat of death to like endanger their own lives to do missions that are too dirty for common superheroes. And like, there's a lot of exploration of how fucked up that is. I also love about Ratcatcher two 
specifically her backstory with her dad, we get a portrayal of a drug addict that is not negative. Her dad isn't abusive. Her dad isn't like this sick, neglectful bastard or anything. He's a caring, loving father with a drug addiction. And the way she talks about him is like his burden eventually was too heavy for him to bear. Like he dies of an overdose. Like it's this such a real human portrayal of drug addiction of like, he's still a person. He still has, he still loves his daughter. He's still doing his best to take care of her, even though his drug addiction is making their lives harder. It was surprisingly profound for this movie to be like, drug addicts are like not these horrible, horrible people. And they're not just tragic figures. They're like, they're people, you know, that have connections and you know, have lives and try to live them, but they're burdened by this thing that they have. And yeah, it's go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it's just beautiful that this was in this movie. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's it's one of those tropes that's broken mm-hmm. that you don't nece- you don't quite necessarily know that you want broken or are conscious of it until it gets broken. Yeah, because so much so much of media is oddly kind of conservative to use a word about you know depicting drug addicts. So they, they might be just unrepentant criminals in something or, or, or gangbangers or just pieces of shit, abusive pieces of shit. And like at their most positive portrayal, they're usually like these tragic figures who are like horribly disfigured and horribly like out of their minds, but like nonviolently so. But like here, it's like he's not that. He's a heroin addict, yes, and it's like ruining his life, but like he's still a person who has a connection with his daughter. The denouement of the whole movie, which I don't think I want to spoil right now, but like he's a character that has like one line and a, and a flash and two little flashback scenes. Mm-hmm. But like his his character and his one line is so important to the overall theme of the movie mm-hmm. because Ratcatcher Two is the character that is the one that breaks down the barriers for everybody yeah. and kind of brings kind of brings them together because. This also leads into Bloodsport. When they're talking on the bus and she's revealing her backstory, she's talking to Bloodsport because his whole thing, he's just, he's just kind of a bastard. You know, he has a daughter and which is another kind of point in comparison to blood, uh, dead shot in the first one. Yeah. But the dead shot daughter thing in the the first one, it's that cliche of like, Oh, he's a bad guy, but he just wants to be close and be with his daughter mm-hmm. because he still loves his daughter and Bloodsport here. He loves his daughter, but he's, he's still an asshole. He doesn't know, how, but he doesn't know how to connect to her. It's such a refreshing well, sort of portrayal of this dynamic. He doesn't want to connect to her. He, he has this yeah. idea of like, I'm a bastard who will ruin your life. I don't want anything to do with you because you shouldn't have anything to do with me. So like. Yeah, it's a much more realistic depiction of like what a criminal who literally just murders people for money would be like if he had a kid. In a lesser movie, their scene together in in prison when he's talking to his daughter would go the way you you would think. Oh, they're gonna have this heart to heart, and he's gonna have this sorrowful sort of look in his eye, and like maybe give me a chance, or I can make it better, or I can make it right. <laughs> That's not how it goes. Mm-hmm. She's like. I got arrested for stealing. And he's like, well, what'd you steal? I, I stole this like basic, it's an Apple watch, but it's not called an Apple watch. Mm-hmm. And he's like, the next time you want to steal something, bring a partner. <laughs> he gives her criminal advice. And like, they just get into this screaming fuck you match, like a fucked up relationship that they have. And you can tell that like, he doesn't want anything to do. With, like there's never a moment 
there's a moment later where she sees him on TV, like, saving people, and she's like, that's my dad. And, like, you can say, like, oh, that's a little cliche or whatever, but, like, he never has a moment with his daughter where they just get together and everything's hunky-dory and, like, they have a happy life together. It's just like, no. Like, he doesn't want anything to do with her because, like, he fucked up. He's fucked up and he doesn't want to fuck her up. But then Waller threatens his daughter and he's like, fuck, okay, I guess I'll go do this so that she won't be in jail. Yeah, his motivation isn't to reconnect with his daughter. His motivation is to just get his daughter away from Waller's machinations. Mm-hmm. We do get the surrogate daughter connection with Ratcatcher 2 on the bus. It's, again, just another understated moment where you know, he's like, she, she tells her whole spiel. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, you kind of remind me of my daughter. He's like, I'm going to get you out of here alive. And then she, you know, being the little sweetie that she's, she's like, I'm going to get you out of here alive. Mm-hmm. And he's just, he's just like, he wipes his face a little because you can see he's kind of getting emotional. And she's like, oh, the bonding family, <laughs> family. And then she does yeah. get him out of there alive at the end. Yep. Oh, and Bloodsport has a severe fear of rats. Yeah. So it's, it's and, great that they bond. Yeah, because he has the opposite sort of backstory as Red Kitchen 2. His, <laughs> his father was an abusive monster who, if he fucked up, would dole out these extreme insane punishments. And one of them was he locked him in a box for, was it 24 hours? Something like with, that. With a bunch of starving rats. So he has this huge phobia of rats and rat catcher two has her own little pet rat named sebastian who waves and uh, is adorable he's so cute he's just a rat rat catcher two is just like a more grizzly version of squirrel girl <laughs> just, yeah kind of just the dirtier version of squirrel girl like if, if squirrel girl was like a dirty bum which i guess she kind of is because she was living in the avengers attic for a while <laughs> but like if, if squirrel girl was just this dirty bum character this is who she'd be they even make you know because Bloodsport, I guess you could say, is the normal, quote-unquote, one of the group. He's, mm-hmm. you know, but he's, even through all the insanity around him, he's still very likable and very compelling. Yeah. His his whole thing, of course, is like, you know, kind of learning to let his barriers down and, like, open up. During the big finale, <laughs> we'll get to the big reveal. Ratcatcher 2 basically saves the whole day. Yeah. Um, she's, she summons all the rats around the city to take down the bad guy. You know, she's like, I'm going to get you out of here alive. She said that earlier. So Bloodsport, he's on his hands and knees in the middle of the street, just like trying to hide himself from this horde of rats. And they're running over him. And like, there's, there's, there's so much emotion in non-dialogue moments in this movie that I love. Yeah. Like she's got her device. She's summoning the rats and like, she cares enough about Bloodsport. She looks over, she sees him cowering and she just puts her arm around him. You know, mm-hmm. and like while well, he's afraid, and there's this brief little shot. It's like one second. It's just this very extreme close up of his eyes squinting in fear, mm-hmm. and it it just humanizes him so much. Yeah, because you could just feel how actually like scared he is, and how he's pretty much just back to being that little kid. And the movie ends like spoilers: Bloodsport's alive. Ratcatcher Two is still alive. King Shark, woo, <laughs> still alive. And Harley, we haven't gotten to Harley yet. Yeah. And the movie, the movie just ends with him on the, the getaway plane with Sebastian, and he's just like tentatively like, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pet it. <laughs> I'm gonna pet the rat. <laughs> I have gotten over my trauma. I have, I have let myself open up a little, mm-hmm. and it, and that's just how it ends with him just just petting Sebastian. And it's such a great little moment. Yeah, 
Yeah, <laughs> I love that moment where he, Sebastian finally gets some... Pa- Everyone is so rude to Sebastian the whole movie. Nobody's nice to him except for Ratcatcher 2. Everybody's like, he waves at people. He tries to shake Bloodsport's hand at one point. And everybody is just so rude to little Sebastian, who's just there trying to be nice and helpful to his friend. And finally, yeah. And finally, at the end, you know, Bloodsport manages to pet him, and it's it's nice little sweet moment. Talked about Polka Dot Man. Um, Should we talk about Harley? Because that kind of also bleeds into the other part of the plot as well. Yeah. With the diversion team, the two that survived. Everybody else died except for Harley Quinn and Rick Flagg. Rick Flagg manages to reconvene with uh, the Rebels and then eventually the rest of the Suicide Squad. Harley gets kidnapped and taken to this, like, regime who's, like, the regime leader who basically apparently knows about her and sees her as an icon of rebellion against America. Like an anti-American sentiment. I... I guess because she's a criminal. I just, I don't know. I, nece- I don't necessarily see any of her stuff from the DC movies as being necessarily anti-American, just like anti-authority and like criminal in general. I, I took it as, I took it as the movie not saying that that is what she is. Mm-hmm. Just that that's how him and his people see her. I guess. Uh, here, here's my thing with Harley. It's one of the complaints I do have with this film. Harley very much seems like a character who is put into this movie because she is Harley Quinn. Like, she is the big face of DC right now. Like, possibly their most marketable figure in the films, at least. And, like, she's fun. Like, Margot Robbie does a fantastic job here. This is possibly my favorite movie with her in it, in terms of her performance. But... Like, you can very much tell that she sort of has, like, plot armor. Like, there's lots of scenes where she should have straight up been killed and she's just not because she's Harley Quinn. And other scenes where it's, like, things are happening with the main squad and then we just cut away to Harley Quinn just kind of doing her own thing because she's Harley Quinn and she gets to do her own thing. And it's not bad. Like, I really like the scene where she, like, breaks herself out and, like, kills a whole shitload of guys and escapes. And then the, like, squad tries to come and save her. And then she just, like, walks up to them while they're trying to break into the building. And she's like, you guys were going to save me. That's so sweet. Like, but, like. You want me to go back inside? You can still do it. Yeah, it's, like, a very funny, sweet moment. But, like, there's definitely, like it kind of pulls at the plot threads a bit because you have this very much connection between the rest of the team and, like, they're developing that sort of found family trope. And then you have Harley just kind of doing her own shit for two-thirds of the movie, and then she just kind of hops in to the main plot, like, in the latter part of the second act. Yeah, um, that is, like, the one criticism I see people have, and it's, she kind of slows the pacing down, and I can see that. But it, it, it doesn't bother me because I, I will agree with you in that I think this is the best uh, Margot Robbie has been in the role. What what I really She's- love about her characterization here is that you get to seem very much the Harley Quinn post-Joker that I feel like they were trying to go for a bit with Birds of Prey. But Birds of Prey was more like her, like the breakup phase, you know, where it was like, like I don't need him. and But yeah, I kind of still want him. But like where here it's like you very much see like a Harley Quinn who's kind of gotten over the Joker and is like trying to figure things out. There's a hilarious sort of monologue she gives where 
she has like this quick romantic fling with like the regime, the head of the regime. And then he starts talking about how he's going to kill anyone who gets in his way. And she fucking shoots him just like out of nowhere. And then she goes on this long monologue, not because he was being evil or anything. She's like, I swore to myself if I saw any red flags pop up and you're, you're, I really think you're a pretty nice guy, but I swore to myself, Harley, if you see any red flags, you need to drop it immediately. And you know, a girl like me just can't walk away. So I, I really had to kill you. It's like, it's this great it's it's both really funny and also like a really good showing of like how she's progressed as a character it's like yeah you go girl you kill this bastard who is going to like ruin your life mm-hmm. um you stole my thunder because i wanted to talk about that oh, sorry my bad <laughs> but yeah um harley has even though she's a bit separate from the main plot for a while she has two of some of my favorite moments in the movie the one was the whole monologue she has it's such a just such a great insight into her character mm-hmm but he he was being evil. Yeah. Um. He's he, he's like. I guess we should explain exactly who this guy is. Um. Him and the general of the military, um, did a coup to the ruling family, um, who had been ruling the the country for years and years and years and conducting experiments on the people at Jotunheim. Mm-hmm. And like he gets Harley and she, he dresses her up and they have this romantic fling and she's really into him and they have crazy violent sex. Um, <laughs> that starts a fire and he's like, he's just talking. He's like, yeah, they did all this and they did that. And that's when I said that, you know, like if anybody tries to oppose me, I'll kill them. Men, women, children, kind of, kind of peacemakery. Yeah. And like when he starts talking about just like murdering people indiscriminately, she's like, Oh, there's the red flag. <laughs> you just, you just hear the gunshot go off and see him get shot. Yeah. And, um, she has a great line. That's like really disturbing during her monologue. Where she's like, you, you, you look, and to be honest, you look better this way. And then it, it cuts to him just like dead, bleeding out on the floor yeah. with all those. And she's like, with all those nasty thoughts leaving your head. Yeah, and I'm just like this. I'm like, this is pure Harley. It really like, is that sort of fucked up. Like, and and at the same time, you're just it, it's very much like, even though it's darkly funny and also disturbing, it's very much a you go girl moment. Mm-hmm. And um, her breakout scene later, um, the, the assassination scene ends with a funny gag mm-hmm. they all bust in and she's like i can't believe this gun had a bullet because <laughs> they they set up the gun earlier when they're fooling around mm-hmm. it's in like this display case and it falls out and stuff like that so mm-hmm. it's set up it's not just a random gun but um she's being tortured and then she breaks out in this awesome crazy cool violent fight scene oh she has javelin's javelin that's such a fun <laughs> through lines is that javelin who's just a guy with a javelin she has, like, this little crush on him at the beginning of the movie. Then he fucking dies in the first 15 minutes. And, like, in his dying breath, he's like, Take my javelin. I need you to... And then he dies. And she's like, You need me to what? And the whole movie, she's trying to figure out what the fuck to do with this javelin. <laughs> she's just carrying it around in place of her hammer. And when she's breaking out and killing all the bad guys, you kind of get you get Harley vision. Mm-hmm. Um, she's she kind of just goes into a crazy stupor, mm-hmm. like all of a sudden, like she's shooting all these guns, and then all these flowers explode in the back of her, and gunshot blood splatters turn into flower splatters, and there's cute little cartoon birds, and she sees the javelin leaning up against like a door, and like it like glows, <laughs> like ah, oh, there it is, and she starts kicking ass with that, and then when um blood sport and peacemaker are there. Oh, no, Flag and Bloodsport. <laughs> Flag's like, why do you have that javelin? She's like, I don't know. I'm waiting for God to tell me. 
Uh, and that javelin is like one of the fucking most OP weapons in all of DC so far. Yeah. <laughs> I will say this actually kind of reminded me of my only other real complaint with the film. Um, cause we were talking about how there's the regime leader and the general, there's like four villains in this movie and none of them are really that important. To be honest, the regime leader hardly kills him in the first part of the second act. And then the general just kind of takes his place as like a, I hate America and we're going to unleash whatever horrible thing is in Jotunheim on America. And like, he's really not an interesting character. He's just this bastard who wants to like kill a whole bunch of people. Then there's the thinker who's just this mad scientist who was experimenting on this, the final villain who we'll get to in a minute. And then there's the final villain who, while very crazy comic booky fun as an antagonist, there's not really much to them as a character. So I, I think the villains here are kind of weak and there's four of them, which just kind of splits them up too much to where it's like, we really don't give a fuck about the antagonists. It's really just watching the protagonists, like, develop and grow, which is fun. Like, I liked seeing, like, all the protagonists, and the antagonists did their jobs as, like, obstacles, but, like, there's not really much to get attached to in terms of the villains. I can see that for the the Quarter Maltese side of the villainy, but I guess it depends on who you think the real villains are. Me, I think the main villain is Waller. Oh, yeah, because Waller's a bitch. She's a great villain because, I mean, I love Amanda Waller in the comics. She's one of my favorite DC characters, actually, because she's like, she's such, she's this interesting person because she's such a fucking asshole. Yeah. But she has her reasons for doing what she's doing. I would say Waller's the main villain. And then after Waller comes Peacemaker, I'd say, even though he's, he doesn't reveal himself to be the villain until the third act. He's a twist villain. Um, and then you have the big bad who they have to like take down, take down. <laughs> who is Starro the Conqueror? <laughs> I love Starro, just like I love King Shark. Mm-hmm. I just love Starro is the first villain the Justice League ever fought in the comics. And they, they really, for me, um, they did him pitch perfectly. I mean, this is Starro. For those unfamiliar um, with Starro the Conqueror, <laughs> Starro the Conqueror is a very large starfish with one gigantic eye in the center of its body. An alien re- starfish. Yeah, who can release a bunch of smaller versions of himself that latch onto people's faces and take control of them like zombies. That is yeah, Starro. He is a kaiju-sized he- starfish. And he uses... Um, the energy he gets from attaching to people's faces and controlling them to, to feed to get bigger. Yes. And it's just, it's, it's one of those crazy comic ideas that you would think they would kind of, most movies would try to tone down because yeah. we're, we're used to comic book movies, toning down certain elements of the characters, making their origins a little bit more believable, even toning down their costumes to look less silly, making them a but little sp- less powerful too. Yeah, but Starro is a big pink and blue starfish with a giant eye with mind control powers. And in this movie, he's a giant pink and blue starfish with a giant eye with mind control powers. If anything, they made him even more out there by making it, like, incredibly grotesque the way his mind control works. Oh, yeah. Nothing... It's not like they just latch on and then, like, after Starro is defeated, like, the starfish just pop off. Like, once they latch on, that person is dead. They're a corpse that he is controlling. And, like, all the experiments and stuff, you see, like, Starro attached to these, like, severed corpses. There's one with, like, its 
lower half just cut off and its intestines dangling down, but it's still moving around because Starro's controlling it. Like, there's one with, like, the star halfway peeled off, and you can see, like, it's the person's face beneath is just ripped to pieces, and there's these little tentacles, like, attaching into its brain. It's, like, it's so fucking grotesque, the way they did this mind control. It's, like, that was the part of the movie I was like, ugh. Like, it was like, I don't, I, was I don't like, I, was, I was waiting for your um, vocal reactions to the, to the gore at some point. Gross. Like I, like King shark ripping a man in half is like so ridiculously over the top cartoony violent that it's like, okay, yeah, whatever. Watching like this starfish stick its little weird tentacles into people's brains and severed bodies and stuff is like, oh, that's nasty. And it's supposed to be. Yeah. That's that's how good the the balance, the tonal balance of the movie is. Is for the the whole movie, like the gore has been like over the top and like, oh my god, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. But we finally get into Jotunheim and see and see what they're doing with Starro. It's it's grim and it's nasty and it's disturbing. And I've made mention of this before on the pod. Like I'm the horror guy. Yeah. And like I've seen some crazy nasty shit. Shit I've ne- shit I'm never going to show Isaac because he'll probably <laughs> judge me if I show him. Oh, I, I judge you I like. anyway, but like still. <laughs> and and like even some of the some of the imagery in this like just because this is a comic book movie and a big blockbuster, I was like, "Ooh, wow. They ooh, that's it's specifically that that shot of the face with just the star shaped flesh just peeled from it mm-hmm. and just, and the person was still alive and they're like, oh. I'm like, Ooh, Nasty. <laughs> that's hardcore. Yeah. And, um, by the time Daro is breaking out of Jotunheim, Kaiju sized, I'm just like this, this, I don't want this movie to end. This, <laughs> this is everything I want out of comic books. It's ridiculous. But it embraces the ridiculousness in a way that, okay, I'm going to do another tangent. Sorry. That's fine. Just let me preface this by saying that I'm not making this a Marvel versus DC thing. That's not what I'm doing. It's just Marvel is the only other huge comic book movie thing out there now. So comparisons are just, you know, going to happen. I'm an MCU fan, but one of my biggest issues with it is that a lot of the times the humor acts in a way to sort of apologize for the premise, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Like, yeah, the, depending on the movies, some more, some less, but Josh Whedon and James Gunn with guardians kind of cemented the MCU humor. And since those, since the Avengers, the first Avengers and guardians, like really became huge and cemented that humor. Like every movie. So like since has tried to incorporate some of that into it. It just, Unless, like, they really know what they're doing, and it's written well, and it's directed well, and performed well, a lot of it falls flat. There's a level and, of sarcasm yeah. in it that, like, it if it's not done correctly, comes off as disingenuine. Yeah, like, they just... It, it's, it's a little too meta, it's a little too wink-wink sometimes, like... I, I just occasionally I want to watch a superhero movie that doesn't pause to tell the audience it's okay to laugh at it. It's also like it was established a lot with Tony Stark's character of like this sort of snarky, sarcastic, you know, humor style that's going on. And then like they kind of integrated it into every character's dialogue. And it's like not every character needs to talk like Tony Stark, you know? Like Tony yeah. Stark is his own character and he has his own identity and his own way of talking. Not not everyone needs to speak the same way he does. Yeah, and it's it's just it's just been a pet peeve of mine with a lot of comic book movies that they just have this 
irony to them that don't need to be there that just feels dishonest and disingenuous at times. Like Dr. Strange, like not to pick on that movie, um, but like it's one of the more serious MCU movies. It has some humor, but like there's that part and it's a little part and it doesn't ruin the movie, but it's indicative of what the problem is. It's like the final act. He's Dr. Strange is suiting up to like go into like the final confrontation and the cloak comes on him and there's just like a gag of like the cloak like that's nasty i cannot believe that movie gets a pg-3 13 rating with that wait what you said the cloak comes on him i really don't how did they get a pg-13 rating out of that movie shut up (laughs) (laughs) anyway like there's just like like it's this cool suit up moment you know dr strange yay but then there's like a gag with the cloak and it's just like no, don't do that. Don't undermine the cool hero moment because that's why we go to these things is to see the cool hero moment. Yeah. Like not to harp on the point, but that's just indicative of the problem, as I said. And with the Suicide Squad, yeah, it's silly and ridiculous, but not in a way that makes fun of itself. It just embraces the absurdity and shows it to you and tells you to go along with the ride. Mm-hmm. So by the time there's this big giant blue and pink starfish rampaging in a city, you're just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm here for it. And the special effects are fantastic with Starro. <laughs> like, he looks really good. Like, the special effects throughout the whole movie are great. King Shark looks fantastic, but Starro looks really good. And as gross as the movie is, nothing grossed me out more than seeing his giant, uh... nasty, like, ground beef looking <laughs> armpits spitting out all the little Starros. Yeah, like... There's like these big folded armpits, and out of each of the glands come little starfish things. It's like, oh no. It's like, Ugh. It's nasty. Kind <laughs> of gross. Mm. Like, he, he does that in the comics, but not with that much detail. It's somebody's fetish. <laughs> it's. <laughs> Yep, somebody's watching this movie. He's like, mm. <laughs> starfish armpit. Yes. Yeah, even me who can who can eat spaghetti watching the grossest movie ever, the, the armpit spewing little starfishes. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like, Ugh. <laughs> uh, <it wasn't. laughs> like I bet, like I bet that stinks. Ew. Uh, <laughs> they were they came out as little clouds too. It was so it was like little odor clouds that came out of him. It's nasty. I, I I want them to add special uh, more sound effects to that, just like little machine gun sounds as they're going mm-hmm. shooting out of his armpit. the uh, The third act of this movie just gets bonkers, and every time I think it's not going to one up itself, it does. Did we <laughs> so miss somebody, did, or did we talk about all the major characters? We talked about all the major characters except for Milton. Milton, no! Oh <laughs> God, Milton! Milton! <laughs> I don't want to spoil Milton for them. People need to watch the movie and see how tragic the story of Milton is. But Milton is so important. He is, but... For a reason, I and I want I'm, to talk about why he's important. Okay. <laughs> I want to okay. believe something for these people to enjoy. Fresh they know new. that it's... Boy, this isn't going to be out until like at least a month after the movie has been That's out anyway. That's true, and we spoil everything in these reviews. Go yeah. ahead. What's special about Mort- Milton? M- Milton is just this guy. Um, he's just, he's a contact that they get along the mission. That's just, he's basically their driver. He drives the bus. And he drives the bus. And what's so funny is that once they meet up with him, like an hour into the movie, he's there the whole time. But because these other characters like take up so much of the room, like you don't notice that he's there all the time, but he is. And then in the third act, they're surrounded by bad guys 
and Milton dies. Polka Dot Man takes it to heart. <laughs> and the, he's with Bloodsport and Harley. And they're like, okay, we got to go. And he's like, oh, they, they killed Milton. At first, it's a joke, of course. And they're like, who? Who the fuck is Milton? Yeah, Bloodsport was like, Milton was still with us. And then Harley was like... <laughs> <laughs> And he's like, and Pokemon Man's just like, are you guys serious right now? He's been with us the whole time. He was a really nice guy, and I really liked him. And because Pokemon Man is like so like sincere about it, it it stops being a gag for a minute because I think what Milton does is contextualize the body count of the movie mm-hmm. a little bit. Like the whole movie, we've been seeing people just get slaughtered in the craziest of ways. But here's this one guy that one of the characters liked and cared about, even though he wasn't important, like he's still a person. He was still alive. I just think it's like a cool little way that the movie acknowledges, like, you know, people are dying Mm -hmm. and like some of them and like some of them matter. So I just, I just think that was a nice little, little twist to that. Another great little moment of heart that James Gunn was able to inject into the script. I like that Harley doesn't like make fun of him for being sad about Milton. She's just yeah. like confused as to who Milton was. She like leans over and she like looks. She's like, "Oh, Milton!" Oh, <laughs> like, oh that Milton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there, may he rest in peace. The the, the sixth member of of Squad Two, mm-hmm. Milton. So, so by the time Starro escapes and is rampaging because he's been experimented on and tortured for 30 some odd years. He's angry and he wants to destroy shit because who wouldn't? Yeah. Um, the only, the only ones left around are Bloodsport, King Shark, Harley and Ratcatcher 2 and Polka Dot Man. Bloodsport is at a loss for what to do. So he starts rallying the troops. He's like, okay, we got to stop this thing. What are we going to do? And he's pep talking everybody. He kind of does a Hulk smash moment with King Shark. Oh, we, He's we like, skipped the part where Waller told him not to go. Oh, yeah. Waller yeah. told him to return after they got the data and everything, and they disobeyed, and she was about to kill him. And then, like, one of one of her people in, like, the room with her knocks her unconscious, which is just such a fuck yeah moment. Because Waller is such a bastard. Everybody fucking hates Waller for good reason, because she's just, she threatens to, like throw Bloodsport's daughter in jail and have her killed for trying to steal, like, an Apple Watch just to piss him off enough to go and, like, do this whole damn mission. Mission, yeah. And it's it's not, like, an idle threat. It's very clear, like, she intends to do this shit. Like, fuck Waller. Fuck Waller so hard. And, like... See? There are good villains because you're very upset about Waller. Yeah, she's one that you love to hate. And, like, having... Having another one of her people, and we see, like, there's this moment with all of her, all the people who, like, run the operations. There's just a few of them. I don't even know if they necessarily get names at any point, but they're this sort of, like, goofy group that really stands apart from her seriousness. Because, like, it it really helps ground her seriousness, too, as, like, part of her character. Because now it's just not, like, a serious character amongst other serious characters. It's, like, a serious character amongst all these other people who are, like, uh, 40 bucks on the shark dying. Or, like, they're just, like, gambling on people's lives and they're joking about it. But, like, throughout the movie, you see them slowly being, like, man, this is kind of fucked up. This shit that Waller's making them do. And by the end, when one of them knocks her unconscious, it's just, like, fuck yeah, Fuck yeah. Good on you all. You all were bastards at the beginning of this movie, and now you have a conscience again. Yeah. It's it's a good moment, one, because she gets her shit knocked out, and two, <laughs> because the whole heroic turn is also just a moment that could have been cheesy, mm-hmm. but it's understated. Like, Starro's rampaging, Waller's like, okay, 
mission accomplished, like, come home. And they all start walking away. And then Ratcatcher 2 is like, oh, are we going to do this? And then Bloodsport's just like, fuck. <laughs> he <laughs> like, turns around. And, and he turns around, and then everybody starts following him, and then King Shark has a great line, where go, friend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he's trying to rally the troops. King Shark, nom nom. King Shark runs and takes a big old chunk out of Starro. Polka Dot Man. Oh, Polka Dot Man. Oh, Polka Dot Man. Bloodsports, hey, you know what? You know who that is? He's like, what? He's like, it's your mom. And then Polka Dot Man looks, and then there's just a giant kaiju mom <laughs> wrecking shit. And then Polka Dot Man's like, oh, God. And then he unleashes his Polka Dots, and it hurts Starro pretty good. Um, gets one of his legs. Mm-hmm. And then Polka Dot Man feels so accomplished. He goes, I yeah, am a superhero. superhero. And he gets and then he gets smushed. And he gets smushed. Into paste. It's just one final dig to the team that you like. And it's it's a great moment because here it is in the climax where we're kind of thinking like, oh, here's their hero moment, so maybe they're all going to be okay. And it's a reminder like, nope, their lives are totally still on the line. Any of them could die any second now. Yep. King Shark uh, gets thrown into a building. You don't know if he's all right. <laughs> what the fuck are they going to do? Bloodsport's gun's not working because he has this cool tech gun that he's mm-hmm. been using throughout the movie. And just when I think the movie can't get any like crazier... Here comes Harley with her fucking javelin. <laughs> and it's like one of my favorite images of the movie. She jumps with the javelin and s- stabs him in the eye- Starro's eye and just goes through the eye. And she's just suspended in this giant eye. And it's eye fluid. It's so nasty. It's But it's oddly beautiful. The movie the frames time. it as like this like mysterious like moment where she's just like floating in the water of the eye and like there's all these colors and stuff going around, and she's just, like, kind of at a peaceful moment. And then fucking rat catchers, rats swim in and start eating, like, the optic nerves and shit and eating Starro from inside, and there's blood in the water and everything. And the whole time, there's just this soothing music as Harley's hair floats behind her. She smiles in, like, a daze, and it's just... It's so fucked up. It's a perfect sign-off for this movie, because it's so fucked up, and the whole time, I'm just sitting there, like... This makes me deeply uncomfortable, but it fits the tone of this movie so damn well. It's so crazy, and I love it so much, because it's just, you don't see this shit in big blockbusters at all. Like, we have Harley Quinn floating in a giant starfish eyeball, and because we know Harley perceives reality differently from her flower massacre earlier, you understand why she's in this eyeball and she's enjoying it. You understand why she thinks it's so pretty because her perception's fucked up. So it's just, it's like this weird, like, culmination of just like the ideas of the movie. Like, we have these downtrodden people, you know, scum of society. They're the ones who end up, you know, mattering, making a difference. And that's like the, the, the pin in the whole movie is when Rat Catcher 2 is saving the day. There's a flashback to being with her dad. And she said, why, why rats, Papa? You know, he says, rats are the lowliest of all God's creatures. If they have purpose, so do we all. And it's just, it's this great little line. And it ties, it ties the, it ties the room together. Just like the rug and the big Lebowski. It just ties <laughs> the room together. I, I love that line. I love everything about Ratcatcher and her backstory. She's, I really do think she's like the core emotional tying force in this film like everyone gets their heartfelt moments and everything but like i really feel like Ratcatcher 2 is the one who sort of ties everything together 
Yeah, you don't peg her as the one that's going to save the day. No. You, you figured because it's a superhero movie and it's big and it's violent and it's crazy, it's going to be Bloodsport or Peacemaker or both of them or Harley. And it's it's Ratcatcher. She's the, she's the big hero of the whole thing. Yeah. And that wraps it up. Uh, King Shark uh, comes stumbling out of a building, <laughs> looking dazed, a little beat up. Mm-hmm. And Ratcatcher goes and gives him a big old hug. Yeah, they have a great <laughs> and moment. Wants, and like, on like the flop back where like she falls asleep on his arm and you can tell he's just so happy to have a friend. Yep. Oh, God, he's making me cry like three times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, that's Suicide Squad. That's how it ends. Well, that's not how it ends. The funniest fucking joke in the whole movie oh my comes God. after the title card. Oh, my God. Uh, so it cuts the first time I saw it. <laughs> Go ahead. First time I saw it, I laughed my ass off. Second time I saw it with you, I laughed my ass off. Okay, so it cuts You're- back to the beach where the original squad was, the diversion team, and it cuts to fucking Weasel lying on the beach, and he starts coughing up water. He's alive. <laughs> Weasel survived. He just coughs up water, looks around, stand up, and he just, like, awkwardly runs away. It's so Chittering the whole time. <laughs> He's just oh, like a chupacabra on this much. island now. He's just <laughs> off to become, like, a local legend. <laughs> oh, it's Perfect so fucking funny. joke to end the movie on. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, like belly loud laugh in movies often even if i find the movie i'm watching funny mm-hmm. i'm not a boisterous laugher but everything with fucking weasel in this movie just it's had so me cackling he just, doesn't he's not around uh, long but my god is he amazing while he's there <laughs> uh, also and then, also peacecake uh peace peacemaker peacemaker yes i don't i wanted to say peacekeeper for some reason uh peacemaker survived uh, his five. I don't know if we actually said like blood sh- blood sport. Oh yeah, we didn't. Yeah. yeah, like he's Bloodsport. about to kill Ratcatcher, and Bloodsport sees this and shoots him. Like they actually shoot at each other, and his bullet goes through Peacemaker's bullet, which is a cool payoff because earlier they're dick measuring like their skills, and Peacemaker is like, "Oh, I'm more accurate because my bullets are smaller," and they go through your bullets. You know, yeah. Your bullets and then Peacemaker's bullet, I mean, Bloodsport's bullet ends up going through Peacemaker's bullet because it's smaller. Yeah. So that, that's a cool little twist of a payoff there. Yeah. Um, Peacemaker is alive. Yep. And he, he has a show coming out. So that that's why there's that stinger there, which I'm excited for because. I did not expect f- John Cena to be such a good actor in here. Like I know. <laughs> he did a really good performance here. The question is, who found him? You know who found him? It was fucking Weasel. <laughs> Weasel just dragged him back to America. When he woke up on the beach, because it looks like it was that same night, just later, yeah. maybe his cum came back online and like, go he was just doing his own thing, and Waller was just like, Weasel, go get Peacemaker. <laughs> oh, boy. That's my headcanon. Oh, boy. That's my headcanon. Uh, should we do some nerd ethics? Let's wrap up uh, our overall thoughts okay. about the film and the themes and all that. All right. I absolutely adored this movie. Um, as you can tell, for the past two hours, I've been raving about it. If I had to come up with a few little niggles and naggles here, um, my only real gripe that kind of bothered me is the thinker. He's played by Peter Capaldi. He's the one who experimented on Starro. Peter mm-hmm. Capaldi's a great actor. He's good in the movie. He didn't have to be the thinker. 
because they establish that he has mind powers, but he never uses them. Oh, yeah, he never does anything that really establishes him as, like, a genius. That's, like, the only area where I think the movie just dropped the ball on. This thinker really doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's such a joyously ridiculous, heartfelt extravaganza. I just, I'm a sucker for the found family trope and I'm a sucker for movies that you know embrace the the outlaws the renegades the the weirdos and James Gunn is just so good at doing that yeah and I just I just love the theme of like there's there's a running theme of people bad people subjugating things that are they perceive to be beneath them whether it's birds or alien starfish or people there's a theme of people being used and stepped on because they're thought of as lowly. And the whole idea of the movie is that these people, they might be, they may be bad people they may have done bad things in the past, but they can still find a purpose and they can still do good. It's a really fun message. It's a really heartfelt message and it's not cheesy. It's not saccharine. And, and it ties into some it, more serious, like real world themes. Like we talked about earlier with yeah. like prison system that we have where we exploit people, you know? Yeah, there's commentary about the prison system. There's a lot of commentary about American foreign policy mm-hmm. because the reason this island, this Corte Maltese, like, is hosting Starro and experimenting on it because Americans want to do it. And America doesn't want to have that kind of shit happening on their soil. This nation is just basically just a scapegoat. Amongst all the craziness, there's a lot of social and political commentary underneath to dig into as well. Yeah, but it's not like over, it's not heavy handed. It's like woven in mm-hmm. all the other themes. This is probably one of my favorite combat book movies so far, like ever. I I love it. I love everything about it so much. I praise. Uh, so I want to talk a bit about the DC extended universe to sort of contextualize my thoughts on this movie. For the longest time, I really wasn't terribly into the DC films. I had this trend where like I'd watch them once and be like, eh, that was okay. And then I'd go back and watch them again and be like, ugh, that really wasn't that good. And like, they just, my, my opinions on them would lessen with each viewing. That happened with Man of Steel. That happened with Batman vs. Superman, both the theatrical release of it and the extended version. You said you liked Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman a little better after you watched them again. No, I think I said the exact opposite. No, uh, well, anyway. You're, you're remembering it. Go ahead. That's wishful thinking on your part, unfortunately, because Tyler is the big DC fan. But yeah, both of those movies, uh, Justice League as well, uh, and even the extended cut of Justice League, I wasn't big on. But I can I can safely say now that I like the more recent DC films. I haven't watched the new Wonder Woman. Uh, the not curious what you'll think of that because that movie is very divisive. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people don't like that one, but. The original Wonder Woman, I think, was really good. I have a few problems with it, but I think overall it's good. I liked Aquaman. I thought it was a fun movie that had some, like, new, more interesting superhero action scenes with, like, all the weird fish and underwater stuff. Shazam is fantastic. It's one of my favorite superhero movies just because of the way that it portrays, like, the sort of childlike wonder of superheroes. And this very much fits into that theme of like DC is making good superhero movies now. And what I really appreciate it is that even though this is all technically part of the same like DC cinematic universe or whatever, the DC films are very much 
more standalone films, you know, like you don't have to watch the original Suicide Squad, which don't watch the original Suicide Squad because I watched it once and it was shit and I don't really remember anything about it. You can watch these films on their own and they're their own stories, whereas with Marvel, it's much more of this woven, integrated tapestry that's all together and you have to have all these other stories contextualized, which we've talked about before. There are pros and cons to that. There's pros in the sense that, like, this is something very new on this scale, and it gives this new sort of cinematic experience. But on the con side, it feels like every movie sort of bleeds into each other and spends more time trying to set up the next film than really appreciating its own story. And not all Marvel films are responsible for that. But I really appreciate that this one just... It's its own story about these characters with its own themes told in its own way. Like, this doesn't feel like Wonder Woman. This doesn't feel like Shazam. This doesn't feel like Batman vs. Superman or Justice League or anything. This feels like its own film. It's not trying to thematically or aesthetically match anything else. It is its own movie, and it's addressing its own themes and characters in a way that it wants to. And I, I greatly admire it for that. I really do like this movie a whole lot more. I do have some problems with it, like I said, with the villains. And I feel like Harley's story is a little too much to the side for most of the film. And she kind of distracts from the found family narrative because, you know, she's not really with the rest of the team until the third act. But, like, for the most part, I really enjoy this movie, too. I think it's a great superhero film and just a great... There's very much an appreciation for comics on display here that a lot of comic book movies are afraid to go whole hog into. Yeah. Well said, well said. And I'm I'm really glad you brought up the movie just having its own identity, complete in and of itself. Because what I find really disappointing now is that because the shared universe idea has been so successful with Marvel mm -hmm. and now is becoming a bit more successful with DC being more accepted. Is that now, because it's such a thing, fans just expect everything to just, like, tease the next thing and, and it's, it's lead sad. into the next thing and build into the next thing? And it's like, now fans, like, they're not even allowing themselves to just appreciate what they're watching. Yeah. Because if it doesn't, like, drop a bunch of hints to, like, what's coming next, then they feel disappointed. You know, it, it's sad that that's kind of connected to comic book culture in general, because comic books are a long running comic book series are established that way. They never end. The story never ends. You just get like these ongoing series that end on another cliffhanger and another cliffhanger and another cliffhanger. The way the Marvel formula is very much the comic book formula of you continue having cliffhangers and like teasers for what comes next. That, like, it's it's kind of shitty, but it's also very much just, like, an ingrained problem with comic book culture. Believe me, don't get me wrong, like, that's part of the fun is, you know, the hints and teases. Yeah. And, and, but, like, I, I keep seeing it with everything now. Like, when WandaVision came out, I kept seeing a bunch of takes, like, it was alright, I guess, but it didn't add anything big to the main story. I saw that with WandaVision, with Falcon and Winter Soldier, and now with the Suicide Squad. It's like, that's not the point. Like, it's that's not a flaw. That's just your own expectations because mm -hmm. you've been so spoiled by everything this past like 15 years with these movies that you just, you know, expect this big commercial for the next thing. Yeah. Like it's like, no, take a step back and appreciate 
what you just saw, it's, you know? It's especially sad because it is more coming from, like, gropping fans now than from the studios themselves. Like, Marvel has done a lot. It still has a bunch of teaser stuff in it, of course. But it's done a lot to sort of step away from the formula. Like, WandaVision was its own story that, while it teased other things, it was very much a story about Wanda going through her trauma and everything. And, like, like it wasn't meant to be an advertisement for another show. Same with, like, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yes, it established some stuff that's going to come up in later series and later films and everything. But that's not the purpose of that story. The fact that, like, the studio is sort of branching out in its styles, like how WandaVision, you know, did, like, the sitcom tropes. And also, like, going into more, like, heavy political themes and everything. The fact that, like, the fans are pushing back against that is really sad. Because, yeah. like, if it was just a studio pushing it, you know, that's one thing. But, like, the fans themselves are so conditioned to be like, we just want a big advertisement for the next thing. That's what really sucks. Because now it's like, well, they're going to start catering to that. And it also basically shows that, like, hey, their advertising worked. Yeah, and it's it's doubly sad because it's more like brand loyalty than fandom in a way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, I've I've literally seen the take of... This didn't matter for WandaVision, Falcon and Winter Soldier, Suicide Squad. I'm like, what, what do you mean it didn't matter? Like, because, like, it didn't have this huge Easter egg for, like, the next thing or didn't have a bunch of cameos that you wanted? Like, yeah. to, to, to say something didn't matter because, like, it wasn't a commercial for the next thing is just, it's, uh, bums me out. This is, this is a totally, totally off topic, but that just reminded me. Um, you know what else doesn't technically matter? Indiana Jones's role in Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> oh yeah, the if you take Indiana yeah. Jones out of Raiders of the Lost Ark, like the plot just happens the same. The Nazis get the ark, they open it up, they all die. Like it's the exact same plot. It's like <laughs> we don't want to keep repeating myself, but just these are these are movies. They're not they're not issues of a comic, even though they're trying to stylistically in certain ways replicate a comic book it's still a movie it's still a narrative it has to function as a movie there's also this there's this idea tied to that of like this this worship of plot this idea that like that like the most important thing in a story are the is the series of events that happen and it's like no that is not the most important thing in a story the most important thing in a story is the expression of themes through those events and the characters who are undergoing those events. Like, Thank you. That is the most important part of any story in any medium. It's not like, if I said, okay, let's recap real quick the Suicide Squad movie's plot. Um, a bunch of criminals are sent to an island to recover some information for the U.S. government that they want to hide. They find out that the U.S. was experimenting on an alien. The alien breaks free and kills a whole bunch of people, and the squad manages to stop them. That's boring. Just recapping those things that happen is boring. But yeah, that's, that's, the that's plot. a million other things that have, we've seen and read yeah, before. That's the plot. The, blo- the plot is a bone structure to keep your like story flowing in a direction. It is the thing that keeps the story from just being all over the damn place. But it's not the reason for the story. The reason for the story is to express some greater themes that connect to us or to have some sort of entertainment value through comedy or action or these things. It's not about just finding out what plot point happens next 
Like, yeah, it's oh, you're. It's like you're reading my mind tonight. <laughs> you keep hitting on pet peeves. We're on the, mine. We're on the same page. <laughs> we're on the same with, page with media now. criticism lately. Yeah, but, yeah. This whole obsession with plot that I keep seeing from people is just—it's nuts. Like, like yeah, like it, it, matters, it, it, it is. It matters to an extent. Like, like structurally, yeah, you need to know how to, you know, hammer out a plot to drive a narrative, but. Filmmakers themselves will tell you have been on record as saying plot doesn't matter. Plot is the least important thing. It's it's what's around the plot that matters. Yeah. Ask any filmmaker worth their salt. They will sacrifice like plot logic. Ask any storyteller. Every yeah. story has already been told. The only things that matter is in the telling of it. A storyteller will sacrifice plot mechanics and plot logic for emotional payoff. 99% of the time. Yeah. Because that's how stories are told. It's why there's so many stories with plot holes that are still like some of the greatest stories ever told. It's like the fact that there are plot holes doesn't like take plot holes only matter when there are such an egregious number of them and they are so distracting that they take away from the emotional impact. Like they completely break the, the logic or rules of the movie. Yeah. But like, on the like, so many great stories just have plot holes, and people don't give a shit because why would they? Yeah, and and if you applied that kind of stringent like, and that's another thing, plot hole culture, like oh, plot hole, plot hole, plot holes. Like, yeah, shut up. Like for for one thing, you got to know what a plot hole is. A plot hole isn't something that you wanted explained that wasn't explained. A no. plot hole isn't a, a development you just didn't like. People use people use all of these things to mean plot hole that aren't plot holes. A plot hole is something that either breaks an already established rule of a narrative mm-hmm. or completely undercuts everything that has come before it. Vampires burst into flames in the sunlight. And if you set that rule and then later see a vampire in sunlight not bursting the flames, that's a plot hole. Yeah. Like, not explaining why... Vampires burst in the flame and sunlight isn't a plot hole, but right. that's how people express what they think a plot hole is. Yeah, it's just it's just ugh. yeah. Plot holes don't matter most anyway, of the time. That was our general film criticism, but the yes. but the Suicide Squad is a great movie. I love it as well. Yes. Okay, it's not a good it's not a tongue and geek episode without a giant tangent or four, <laughs> with <five>. multiple tangents. <laughs> That's what people come for anyway. Us just talking about the movie by itself is just the icing on the cake of us rambling about other shit. I, I mean, that's why they chose the Captain America ending in Endgame that people bitch about. Like, oh, it broke the time travel rules. It's because they wanted the emotional payoff more than they cared about sticking to the complete rules of time travel. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's so much more important to see Steve Rogers as an old man hold, handing over the shield to Falcon than it is to actually just follow the rules of like, oh, he's on a different timeline now. It's like, n- nobody gives a shit during that moment. You only give a shit afterwards when you start overthinking it. Yes. Stamp of approval. <laughs> Are we doing review review or nerd ethics? We, I, we're running long. Well, I don't know how long we're running because we had some technical issues. Well, we started of. late, so yeah. we, we haven't been going for a full two hours yet. Let's let's do the nerd better. ethics. It, it's, it's the super obvious question here. In this whole story, I feel like the most obvious ethical question, is there a, an ethical justification for the use of a suicide squad, a.k.a. forcing criminals to undergo dangerous, life-threatening situations in order to 
do something for the government or save lives. Oh, God. Because I fucking hate Waller. I do. But is there a justification to the idea of forcing people under threat of death to do something that supposedly benefits the greater good? I, I mean, I think that's the subtext of the entire title. Mm-hmm. You know, comics, comics and movies in general. Mm-hmm. It, it it wants you to ask that question because here we have these characters. Some of them are completely irredeemable, but some of them aren't. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it wants you to be like, "Is this right?" I'm like, "Can we justify this?" And I don't think it has an answer. I don't think it's supposed to have an answer. Well, I mean. It's uh, it's that's a, loaded, that's a loaded topic. It is, it is, and I think it's because we've talked about this a few times now. The under tech, like the underlying, like real world implications of this, with like the, our actual prison system and how we literally have in the real world slave labor through the prison system in America. Like it's literally written into the Constitution, Thirteenth Amendment of the Constitution, that slave labor is still okay if done with prisoners. So this just pushes this to the extreme of like not only slave labor, but slave labor that threatens lives and is done under threat of death. I can't think of a way to justify that. Like you can make the argument, especially in this universe where there are other superheroes, really the only reason for the Suicide Squad to exist is so that those other heroes don't have to get their hands dirty and do a job that would make them look bad, or that they may not even agree to because this is being run by the government. I don't don't think you can justify this because it's such like a shady like government control sort of thing. It's not like, oh, Amanda Waller was doing this to protect people, or really there's like the government would want to do this for a justifiable reason. Like the only reason this would ever happen in that world or in the real world is if there was something horrible going down that the government wanted to hide and keep quiet. Yeah. Um, because of the real world implications that all these fucking nerd ethics that you bring up have. That's the um, whole point of nerd ethics. It's to <laughs> consider the ethical ramifications of these fantasy worlds that we I mean, explore. There's the there's the real world ongoing, you know, conversation of our prison of our prison system. It's you fucked. know being being fucked, being inhumane, and then you have the people like, Oh, the criminals are do why should it be humane and da 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 we could go down a huge rabbit hole about rehabilitation and how prison doesn't fucking actually help anybody nope it just makes the situation and the people worse it costs and it's, us money and it doesn't help anyone with the suicide squad like it's not even it's not even it's the illusion of choice mm-hmm. because at first it's like oh you help us do this thing you get 20 years taken off your sentence mm-hmm. and each mission you accomplish you get more taken off your sentence but it's not really a choice because they have a bomb implanted in their neck mm-hmm. that'll explode if they go off mission. And even if so, they don't agree to it, even if they don't agree to join the Suicide Squad, Amanda Waller forces them in by threatening yeah. their children and loved yeah. ones and everything. So it's like we'll just, man- we'll just manipulate you into doing it if she really wants you. Yeah, that's why I love her character so much. Is she's she's so unique in the DC universe because in the comics she's this heavy set black woman. Mm-hmm. And she, of course, she's she's a black woman in the movies. Just in a universe that's colorful, muscle bound, capes and costumes and stuff, she's this hard ass. And like, she has her own moral code, of course. Like, she's doing what she's doing, kind of in a peacemaker way. Like, mm-hmm. she will do anything that it takes 
to save the world. Oh, in this movie, Peacemaker is very much like the hand of Waller. Like, yeah. that is how I would describe him. Like, he is the he is the acting force for her. Do you know the origin of Batman Beyond? Uh, not really. I need to watch Batman Beyond. Um, you don't, you actually don't learn the origin in Batman Beyond. You learn it in Justice League Unlimited. Oh. But Terry McGinnis is the Batman in Batman Beyond. And the whole series, he's, he's just, you think he's just Terry McGinnis. And a lot of people don't like the, the origin, but I like it because of what it does with Waller. Mm-hmm. In the episode epilogue in Justice League Unlimited, Waller reveals that she cloned Bruce Wayne. And Terry is the clone because the world needs a Batman. Hmm. And I'm like, that's the, that's the most fucking Amanda Waller shit that is ever Amanda Waller. <laughs> like from a character perspective, I can see how that might undermine who Terry McGinnis, who you thought he was yeah. throughout Batman beyond. But as a piece of lore building, I think it's brilliant. I just, I love reading the shit she's going to pull out of her ass to justify doing what she's doing. Yeah. And like so, she says it in this movie, she's like, you have no idea w- what I will do, you know, right? to complete the mission, to save the world, to, you know, da, 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 da. So I guess our answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> justification. Is no. No, justification no justification for this shit. It's, it's, it's cool because Batman in the comics, um, there's this famous cover of one of the suicide squad, suicide squad issues. It's just Amanda Waller and she's like running up on Batman. She's pointing her finger in his face and he's like backed up all scared. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, it's really famous cover because like you don't see Batman in that compromised position. He hates the Suicide Squad because he's like, hey, wait a second. Like they can't do this. I do this. Like they don't ha- like this isn't right. They're criminals. And, and like Amanda Waller's like, hey, wait a second. We have government permission to do this. You're the vigilante, mm-hmm. you know, and like he's just like, fuck, she's right. <laughs> he just like leaves. <laughs> I'm rich. The rules don't apply to me. Anyway, uh, read the, read the Suicide Squad comics if <laughs> there's a wreck. If you Suicide enjoy Squad. this review, I actually need to read some. I haven't. I don't think I've. I don't think I've ever read one of their comics. I've seen like pages and stuff from them online, but I've never actually read any of the runs. Now that you've told me that this particular team doesn't exist in the comics, nope. that makes me sad. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's, I mean. Time for a review review? Let's do it. All right. Uh, this one has, on Rotten Tomatoes, 91% critic reviews and 84% audience reviews. Before I get into specifics, I do want to talk about some of the common things I saw. A lot of people were talking about how they didn't expect or were upset by so much vulgar language and violence in this film. And I think this was a lot of just like parents who saw, oh, it's a superhero movie and decided to take their kids to this, even though it had an R rating. And then they suddenly realized like, oh, this isn't a movie for kids. And instead of like being like, oh, I should really should check the rating. They're just like, man, this movie is awful and horrible and it really shouldn't be this. It's such an awful thing. It's like, it's know, a tale as old as time. Just yeah. stupid brain dead parents not know, paying attention. Know what you're getting into whenever it's, you. Get it has the word suicide in the title yes, for one. That's one thing, and two, we've had the rating system forever. You should know what an R rating means by now. It means it's not suitable for children. It means it's going to be very violent or sexual or vulgar or something that is inappropriate. Yeah. Another thing that I saw as a very sort of common thread is that people were sort of like, they didn't like Starro. They thought the monster was too silly, the giant starfish monster at the end. And like, I guess that's just sort of 
indicative just, of yeah, like it's a taste thing. Yeah, it's a taste thing, and it's sort of indicative of how superhero movies have been toned down to appeal to broader audiences. Like, I get it. Like, it's not going to appeal to everyone for the big bad at the end to be a giant starfish that walks around all floppy and releases other smaller starfish. But, <laughs> so great! But yeah, as a comic book fan, I love it because that kind of wacky shit is just so comic book, and it's great to see it played out on the big screen. Yeah, so let's get into some specific reviews. <laughs> this is funny. I got two back-to-back here that I'm going to read off. The first one is from Clifford. And he says, it's worth seeing John Cena die. Five out of five stars. <laughs> and this is immediately followed by G- Gene, who says, didn't like seeing John Cena dying. Loved seeing him in the recovery at the end. 4.5 out of five stars. So on one hand, you have someone who really fucking hates John Cena and loved watching him die. And then someone else who got upset at seeing John Cena die. So that just cracked me up. Um, <laughs> We, <laughs> we've already talked about it, but I, I think John Cena is great here. I think oh yeah, he's, he, he is. Like I, I did the, not the, expect this the, kind of performance out of him. The best thing I can say, and this is high praise indeed, is that I forgot I was watching John Cena. Yeah, yeah, that that is high like, praise. I, I thought I thought he was I thought he was fun in his other roles that I've seen him in, but it was still always just like <laughs> there's John Cena. It's, with, it's, with with this, it, he he completely. It sheds that. It, it's interesting that we've reached a point where, like, ex-athletes and celebrity athletes have become actors in a way that isn't just, like, shit, you know? Cause there yeah, was there's a, a lot of them, too. There's a like, lot of, like, good actors who are also, who were celebrity athletes. Like, the, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is a good actor. He's in a lot of shit. Dave like, Batista. Yeah, Dave Batista does a fantastic job as Drac in the Guardians movies. Um... Like, it's interesting that we're seeing actual acting talent from these people, because for the longest time, it was like you put like a, a an athlete of some kind into a movie just for the celebrity face value, like in Space Jam. Like, you know, they did it with Michael Jordan, Ron they did James. it with LeBron James, and it's like, they clearly aren't actors, they clearly aren't meant to for this, but we're seeing, we're seeing oh, actual actors. Speaking of John Cena, uh, there's the, I love lowbrow humor. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't care who knows it. And every time I see people like, oh, dick and fart jokes, the, the, the lowest of the low, I'm like, I don't care. It's fucking funny. The the part where Bloodsport shoots King Shark because he's about to eat Rat Catcher and John Cena comes running up in his tiny whiteies. Yeah. And you can just tell that they like, put a giant, you just get this giant fucking package. Oh, uh, it was funny. They don't, like, they don't like mention it or anything. He just has this giant fucking package in these mm-hmm. tiny whiteies. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty uh, great. Uh, juvenile uh, humor, I love it. Well executed juvenile he- humor, I should say. Uh, this next review is from Chad O. Chad says, because of the high ratings, I was expecting more like the caliber of Guardians of the Galaxy, or at least entertained like the first one. I'm going to stop you there, Chad. I'm going to stop you there. Oh, Chad. What, what about the first movie did you really like that this one didn't provide for you? Chad, you're not being much of a Chad right now with this review. <laughs> was it Killer Croc? Was he your favorite? He was there. He was present in the film. He he was in the movie. But he says, nope, fell short. Characters unengaging with the exception of Harley and a few good action scenes. The main starfish villain, too, added an unrealistic plot. It never gained momentum with the characters and the storyline. Bummer. Two out of five stars. Uh, I, 
Uh, whatever. It's not for everybody. <laughs> it's not for everybody, but I don't. Everybody. I don't understand how you can watch the first Suicide Squad movie and like it more than this one. Specifically, when one of your criticisms is that like the characters in this one are unengaging. The just, first I Suicide Squad movie it has all these characters and nothing about them matters. Like, yeah, n- not really. No, I don't remember anything about most of the characters. I remember there was a flame dude whose power was that, like, he could burn things, and he accidentally burned his family, and that's like okay, sort of tragic. And then Deadshot had like his daughter or whatever that he loved, and then Harley Quinn was upset with her breakup with the Joker, and like that's it. None of the other characters had motives or reasons to be there. They were just there. What I think it is, and I do not mean this to be judgmental, I really don't, is it, it goes back to just the movie being this outlandish fucking tone. Mm-hmm. I think the the first one, people do like it. It does have fans. It's weirdly serious. It's it's, it's weirdly, it's just, it's it's more palatable. You know, it has a bunch of needle drops. There's There's all kinds of music in it. Which wasn't supposed to be in the original version. Mm-hmm. So you have this this huge pop and rock and hip hop soundtrack. And this movie uses a lot of like pop music and stuff. It just better executed. Yeah, and it's just it's it's a more palatable movie. It's it was it was cut down to PG thirteen, and it has this kind of predictable sort of narrative, you know, beat to beat to beat. But this one, it's 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 bigger. It's weirder. It's very violent. It's vulgar. It's so I just think the weirdness of it, people just aren't some people just won't take to. Yeah. I mean, because like when you said, like we've been talking about how it embraces comic books being comic books. Yeah. And so many other movies tone it down. Like just just look at Avengers. Like just look at Infinity War and Endgame. I mean, those movies are crazy. It's about a big purple alien that comes and conquers. But at the same time, it also tones that down. Mm hmm. Because they make Thanos a much more, he's not generic, but his motivation is much more. It's grounded. In it's the comics, grounded. In the comics, his motivation is that he's in love with death and he exactly. wants to kill everyone to prove his love for her. It's That's this fucking weird, cool. It's this weird Shakespearean sort of thing. In the movie, they make it like, I want to save the universe by, you know, yeah, calling the herd. He's just a Bond villain, but on a cosmic scale. Yeah. Where in the comics, it's just, it's a comic book emotive. Yeah. And I love Thanos in the MCU, oh, but yeah. there's there's this part of me that really wishes they would have just went for the gold. Yeah. And when had him try to court literal death, mm-hmm. that would have been so fucking cool. Would have been wild. But like that sort of groundedness isn't here in this movie. No. Because there's a, a giant fucking mind controlling starfish. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess that's part of it. It's okay, Chad, that we disagree. Let's find one that's a little more different. Oh, here's a quick one. John W. says, big, loud, gross, and vulgar. Loved nearly every second of it. So much fun. Four out of five stars. This bump. This bump. (laughs) Yeah, we agree, John. I think it got a little too much for me in terms of the gross body horror shit. But like, yeah, it's, it's cool. Uh, this one's from Sandra G. I'm a little worried about Sandra. She says, my kids and I loved it. Can't wait for the next one. Five out of five stars. And she put a little smiley her, face in there. Her kids could be 16. I, her kids could be... I hope so. 25. I, her kids could be five. I am... Okay. 
I am not someone who is like, oh, kids need to be sheltered from shit or whatever. Oh, no. I, I'm not. But I do think there is a measure of like, they have these ratings for a reason. You should like, if your kid's like 16 or whatever, yeah, it's fine to show them this movie. Like, they've probably watched Rick and Morty and Invincible and shit anyway, and they probably know about all this horrific, like, horror and violent shit and like this irreverent sort of like dark comedy like they they're probably familiar with this but if your kid's like fucking eight or whatever don't don't take him to see the suicide squad you're gonna give him a complex (laughs) yeah like it's 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 like my whole thing is just know your kid you know yeah I mean, I have a very lax opinion about this because I I saw so many movies that I shouldn't have as a young kid yeah and like I love that about you know, my upbringing with movies is like, I saw so many things I should have seen as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I'm fine! <laughs> I'm fine! But And, and th- the reason I think that I was allowed to is because my parents saw that, aside from Jaws, nothing like really bothered me in a way that mm-hmm. gave me nightmares or like disturbed me too much. So, you know, hey, he can handle this. So I was allowed to see like R-rated stuff before the age of ten. Sometimes, yeah, it's. I, I think it's all about knowing your kid. If if you think your ten-year-old can handle seeing the Suicide Squad, uh, you, okay, that's that's your prerogative. Go ahead, but yeah, here's but a, yeah, it's this generally is, no, not kid-friendly. Trust yeah. me, trust us. Yeah, it's not. Um, here's a weird sort of tangent. I don't really have such a problem with like the violence and even like the sexual content and stuff in terms of like being kid unfriendly. Like kids, I, I, oh, there's such fucking discussion about movies and video games making kids violent and that's the reason for shootings and whatnot, but not getting into that. Um, not getting into that discussion. Fuck that. But I do think there is a measure of, with this sort of darker and adult comedy in general, you need to be aware of the messages being t- sent to your kid and what they think is the funny. Meant, yeah. yeah, because a lot of times with these darker comedies and stuff, I don't think with this one in particular, but a lot of times what comes off as funny is just being mean to people. And that's not something you want to teach your children. Like, yeah. like, I don't think kids should be watching shows like Family Guy and stuff at an early age. And I know a lot of them more kids probably watch Family Guy than will watch The Suicide Squad. Because, like, the humor there is built on the idea of just being mean to people is funny. And that's a bad message to teach an impressionable young mind. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. Yeah. And, and I don't but- think I don't think it's like a it's not like an aesthetic thing. It's not like body horror and shit and like sexual content can't be shown to kids it's a, it's a thematic thing it's like you need to know what themes are being expressed to an impressionable young mind and and I, and I also think that people perpetually don't give kids benefit of the doubt yeah like if the kid is well adjusted and they're being raised properly you know they're able to put things into context yeah. like if they see something scary and it scares them, you know, they could be like, oh, yeah, but it's just a movie. Or if they see something like disturbing or like mean spirited, they could still rationalize, oh, it's just this, it's just that. Mm-hmm. Like, of, of course, that's not universal. Of course, the kids are impressionable. Media can make an impression that's not positive. But I think a lot of the time, kids know how to process stuff better than we give them credit for. Yeah, for sure. For sure, kids are more understanding. And 
media can help kids to process things more. You know, good stories can help kids process complex ideas in a more simplified way. That's kind of what I'm getting at, is that be careful with the media you show your kids, not because, like, kids don't need to be looking at violence or sexual stuff, but, like, media will form the way that your child thinks about the world around them. And just be be understanding of, like, what messages are being shown there. Yeah, and talk to them, you know? (laughs) Discuss these things. Discuss these things. Media is important. You know, comics are important. Television's important. Video games are important. They mean things to your kid. They wouldn't spend so many hours enjoying them if they weren't important. This one's from Space Ghost. I don't know if it's coast to coast or not, but this is Space Ghost. Uh, Space Ghost says, Poor writing, poor cinematography, depth of character were shallow. Two out of five stars. Uh, Forget the poor writing and depth of character shit. We've talked about that before. I'm going to talk about their criticism of poor cinematography here there are some really there are some really cool shots in this movie like yeah and i uh, just a couple of ones i love like the opening shot with savant like where you see him in like the reflection of the water and it slowly yeah it slowly comes up and like the whole time he's just like tossing this ball around his prison cell that's a cool shot it really like shows the sort of like and it's great because like in the pool you just see his face and like the sky because it's reflecting the sky above him so you go from this moment of freedom to moving up to him in a jail cell like that's a really clever shot then there's like the shot uh when flag and peacemaker are fighting that's yes, all done to, in the oh, reflection of his helmet thank yeah. you i wanted to mention that that is that's one of my favorite shots of the whole movie mm-hmm. because it's another it was another previous joke that had substance to it mm-hmm. they make fun of his helmet looking like a toilet seat and he's like it's not a toilet seat it's a beacon of freedom and then here we have the villain reveal he's fighting to the death of flag and their fights reflected in his helmet it's 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 a Here's his beacon of, of liberty that he just talked about. It's a perversion. It's not, it's bullshit. You know, mm-hmm. that's the reason the fight's reflected in the helmet. And it's is such to, a great way to visually see. represent that. Like, and it's such a cool way to show an action scene because action scenes so often are just these blurry, sort of shaky cam shots. And here you get like one steady shot of it, like slowly revolving around this helmet and seeing them fighting in the reflection of it. It's great. Yeah, that's like the epitome of good cinematography. Like, I, I, I don't like reviews like this that have these loaded criticisms that are supposed to sound like they're substantive, but mm-hmm. they, they're not at all. These are just empty criticisms. He's not explaining why the cinematography is bad or why the writing is bad. He's just saying it is. So, is it, <laughs> whatever. This one's going to piss you off, too. It's also confusing. This is from Eric H. Eric says, Horrible movie. It's so bad I had to write my first review. Get this liberal crap out of movies. 0.5 out of 5 stars. Oh, no. I know. Okay. I know that we talked about some of the more, like, political themes in here, like the prison system stuff and foreign interference with American military. Those themes are in here for sure. I just don't know... If Eric, and I hate to be presumptive, I don't know if Eric is smart enough to have picked up on those themes to criticize them in the first place. No, it's with with when we do review review, we like to soften the blow and understand perspectives. But with this shit, with this this old fucking liberal, but like 
I, I'm not going to go soft on these. Like, fuck you. This yeah. ever, uh, I hate to make this too political, but this, this growing, this, bridge. <laughs> this growing wave of these freaking shuds that see like liberal and lefty boogeyman in everything now and like take it personally and see it as an attack. Like, grow the fuck up. What does just, liberal just, even mean in this context? Yeah, like, or yeah, any what context? Is, what, 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 what is, <laughs> when, <laughs> There's no description of what themes or elements he didn't like. So it's like, I don't know what you're criticizing. There's this, this, this growing wave of fucking people that just like bitch about everything being woke and liberal now. My pizza because... was too hot. The fucking liberals. <laughs> like, like, like what exactly about this? And when, and when they bitch about things being too SJW or liberal, it's because, Oh, the, the, the agenda, the agenda, what agenda? Like, like what specifically about this movie? Because it had a couple of women in it. Like, is that your problem? That Again, had prominent and there, positive roles. There are like, because the lead character was a black man. Like, what is your yeah, what's your problem? That here? bullshit. Then yeah, fuck off. But like, there are specific messages in here with political overtone, like undertones that you I could talk about. What he, I don't that's, think that's, that's what, what I'm saying. Is like, I all. don't think he was smart enough to catch those in the first. And place. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but if you're triggered by liberal and left and progressive themes in movies, stop watching movies because movies have historically leaned left. Yeah. It's always been the case. Yeah. So I don't know if you started watching movies yesterday <laughs> or 30 years ago, but comic books as you well. Have, you have brain. Yes. Comic books as well. You have brain worms. Shut up. Yeah. Go get the brain worms taken care of and then come back. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's a bad one to end on. Let me find a better, more uplifting one to end with. Here's one from Gavin, and I think Gavin's being a troll, but I kind of love it. Gavin says, great movie, fun for kids, five out of five stars. Yeah, yeah that's definitely a little, it's an innocent troll comment. It's but an yeah. innocent troll. He's pissing off some person who's going to take their kids to go see it and not see the R rating, but it is a fun movie. All right, any final, final notes? Oh, uh, God, I think I exhausted my final notes. Yeah, this has um, been a I long just, one. I just, I love it. It's, I've seen it twice now. The more I think about it, the more I find to enjoy it's. It's just it's a such a refreshing movie. It's yeah. it's so refreshing in in the age of blockbusters that we're in. It usurped Godzilla vs Kong uh, as my favorite blockbuster of the year so far. Oh, high praise. <clears throat> which I, high yes, praise. which I didn't think would happen. But um, Godzilla vs Kong, as fun as it is, it's it's really more of like a for fun sort of movie. Like it has some good character with Kong that's like makes you feel for Kong, but it's not really got any depth to it beyond just like hey big monsters are fighting and that's fine that's what the movie is it's for big monsters fighting this movie has that sort of enjoyability tagged on with actual emotional depth and a great adaptation of comics books superhero stories on top of it yep uh well tyler hates numbers for a reason i'm not clever enough to come up with right now but i'm proud to give the suicide squad tongue and geeks first ever uh, six out of nine dead members of Task Force X Diversion Squad, God rest their souls. <laughs> ah, clever rating. I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Because that's how many of them died of, out of that team. Weasel, Harley Quinn, and Flag survived. The rest of them, all six of those. God rest oh, their Weasel. I'm so happy. I'm surprised they just fucking threw away Captain Boomerang. Not, not that, like, this movie really has any 
respect for the first movie as it doesn't deserve the respect. But like, it yeah, was- that's that's a big gripe with some fans because Captain Boomerang is a pretty prominent character in the comics, not just the Suicide Squad, not just in the Suicide Squad comics, mm-hmm. but he's a main villain of the Flash. Mm. So even people who love the movie are like, "Why the fuck did they kill Captain Boomerang? Like he's like a he's like a big deal. He had so much potential." And like, yeah. I can kind of see that. I kind of agree, but I'm not like mad about it. And I was just yeah. like, oh, like I, I liked him as a character. It's kind of a bummer that he died, but yeah. anyway, this is the outro. This is the outro. Up to like, we've got to find a better way to end this show. I like your little jingle, but it's so awkward just singing it. At well, the end. well, you got to have more. Um, this is the outro. This is the outro. Hope you like the show because this is the outro. Okay, bye.